Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to blacktalkradionetwork.com, helping you filter through the noise. Real Talk, Black Talk. So there was a study released last week that caught my eye. According to USA Swimming, over 58% of African-American children can't swim. That's almost double the rate of white children. And African-American children drown at nearly three times the overall rate. That got us here at the BPP asking questions about, well, race and swimming. And it turns out there's a lot to say about the topic. Swimming pools offer their own history lesson of sorts about how the U.S. has or hasn't dealt with racial tensions over the years. And much of that history is chronicled in a book by Jeff Wiltsey. He's the author of Contested Waters, which is pretty much the entire canon of swimming pool history out there. And Jeff joins me on the line now. Hey, Jeff. Hello. Hey, thanks for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure. So, Jeff, you wrote that in the late 19th century and early 20th, municipal pools, city pools, weren't built, just weren't built in African-American neighborhoods in the same way or at the same rate that they were in other neighborhoods. Then things seemed to shift in the 20s and 30s. Pools were segregated, but separate but equal wasn't really equal, right? Talk about how those pools varied. What were the differences? Okay, well, first let me address what you brought up initially, which is that during the late 19th and early 20th century, cities throughout the northern United States built lots of pools in poor, immigrant, working-class white neighborhoods, but conspicuously avoided building pools in neighborhoods uh, inhabited predominantly by black Americans. And then in the 1920s and 1930s, there was a pool-building spree in the United States, and there were thousands, literally thousands and thousands of pools that were opened up in the 1920s and 1930s, and many of them were large leisure resort pools. They were, some of them, larger than football fields. They were surrounded by grassy lawns and concrete sun decks, and they attracted literally millions and millions of swimmers. And yet, it was at that point in time that cities began to racially segregate pools throughout the North, and it, it then extended, obviously, all throughout the United States. And black Americans were typically relegated, if a pool was provided at all, um, to a small indoor pool that wasn't nearly as appealing as the large outdoor resort pools that were provided for whites. And so take the city of St. Louis. In St. Louis, black Americans represented 15% of the population in the mid-1930s, but they only took 1.5% of the number of swims because they were only allocated one small indoor pool whereas white residents of St. Louis had access to nine pools. Two of them were the large resort pools that I've been describing. Mm. And you have written about some specific instances where there was some real violence surrounding uh, these swimming pools when when black uh, people would try to access these white pools. Can you tell us about some of those incidents, specifically in Highland Park? Yeah, sure. 
so there were two ways in which communities racially segregated pools at the time. One was through official segregation. And so police officers and city officials would prevent black Americans from entering pools that had been earmarked for whites. The other way of segregating pools was through violence. And so, say, a city like Pittsburgh, it did not pass an official policy of racial segregation at its pools, but rather the police and the city officials allowed and in some cases encouraged white swimmers to literally beat black swimmers out of the water as a means of segregating pools, as a means of intimidating them from trying to access pools. And so there was, there was an instance, oh, well, there was a series of instances over two summers in Highland Park Pool when it was first opened in 1931. In Chicago. Um, so Highland Park Pool is actually in Pittsburgh. Oh, in Pittsburgh, I'm sorry. Yeah, Highland Park Pool is in Pittsburgh. Mm -hmm. And so young black men typically between, say, 16 and 20 tried to access the pool. And if they made it into the water, they were oftentimes beat and dunked and punched in the water. Eventually, whites set up essentially sentinel guards at the entrance to the pool. And when black swimmers tried to come in and access them, um, they were beaten up sometimes with, with clubs. Um, they were punched to the ground. They were kicked on the ground. In my book, I have some pictures of, of black Americans who sort of literally sort of lie still on the ground with bloody heads from being pummeled to the ground or just for trying to access the swimming pool. And this fear of or integrated swimming pools comes up so often. In 1968, Strom Thurmond, who was running as president as a Dixiecrat, he said there's not enough troops in the army to force the southern people to break down segregation. <clears throat> I'll admit a word, he said, and admit, Nigga! essentially he was saying black people, into our theaters, into our swimming pools, into our homes, and into our churches. It was always top of mind uh, in racist America. What is it about the swimming pool, Jeff, that was such a flashpoint for these racial tensions? Yeah, the, uh, excuse me, there, there are two things. One is, well, I mean, basically it boils down to swimming pools being very intimate spaces, both physically intimate and also visually intimate. And so physically intimate in the sense that you're sharing the same water. And there has always been fears in terms of using swimming pools about being exposed to the dirt and the disease of other swimmers. And back during the 1920s and 1930s, and really continuing on even further up from there, there were racist assumptions that black Americans were dirtier than whites, that they were more likely to um, be infected by communicable diseases. And so in part, the push for racial segregation and racial exclusion was for white swimmers to avoid being infected by the supposed dirtiness um, of black Americans. But I argue that the primary and the most crucial cause for racial segregation was gender integration, that most whites um, did not want black men in particular to be able to have access to white women at such an intimate public space. Context of white supremacy, Justice Gusty Renegade, and for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of racism. Today's date, Monday, June 8th. 2015 so i have been told uh, the audio clip that you heard at the beginning of the program I, I have mentioned this before i hope all of the hubbub over the last 48 hours or so about the situation down in texas uh, when i have brought up consistently wow there's a whole body of scholarship on racism and black people's access to swimming pools 
Uh, I talked about it with Richard Williams. Uh, Serena Williams just won the French Open this weekend in her dad's uh, autobiography. He talks about growing up in Louisiana where he, dozens of black children died either going out and swimming uh, in some creek or some ditch or, or these other just really horrible conditions uh, and you didn't have uh, a lifeguard uh, and how black children would die all the time. That would be uh, an annual passage of summer uh, to note the number of black children who died in trying to get access to water. And this was not something just in the South, uh, in Chicago. One of their infamous riots started when a black child was swimming at a pool. White people attacked him, ganged him, he ended up drowning, and it ended up sparking days of rioting in Chicago. This happened again in the 1960s. They turned on a fire hydrant. If people have kind of seen that cliche scene in the summertime, children are playing in the fire hydrant. Police came in Chicago. They turned the fire off. It ended up being a big riot that went on for days. I mean, it's just tons of examples. Uh, of this sort of thing, black people being abused, terrorized, even killed trying to access pools. Uh, that was the first thing that came in mind when everything went down this weekend. Uh, in McKinney, Texas, uh, where these black children were, uh, were accosted uh, by these invading officers. I know people are talking about that just to provide some context. Uh, I'm sure we will give an opportunity for our guest to give his views on that as well. Uh, the program for today, uh, just a few weeks back, if you heard that audio, B.B. King was playing uh, in the background a few weeks ago, uh, just incredible uh, entertainment music icon, uh, black genius, B.B. King passed away. And I knew just his music and him growing up in the South as well. Uh, it's no way you could be a black person of his generation and not have many, many incidents and things to say about racism. So I was kind of looking back and looking over his life and different things that he said, how racism influenced, influenced the music that he made. And our guest for the program today, uh, he wrote this really interesting uh, blog post, um, I think, beginning of May. Uh, and it's titled How B.B. King Got Me to Stop Being a racist uh, read the post. I think I read some of it on the air the day that I found it, and I thought it'd be interesting to have him uh, come on the program uh, in addition to reflecting on his own life and how he has been impacted by racism, even admits to being a racist. Uh, he talks about uh, growing up in the birthplace uh, of the Ku Klux Klan uh, down in Stone Mountain, Georgia. Uh, he is currently a sociologist. Uh, I was a bit confused because I saw his CV and said he's at Portland State College, but then I saw some other information online that said he's not there anymore. So I know he's definitely in the Portland area and at least has been uh, at Portland State College in the Department of Sociology. Uh, his areas of research interest include juvenile delinquency, hate crimes, masculinity, racism, prisons, and the construction of whiteness. Uh, he's also currently investigating the transitioning of white supremacist inmates back into the community after their release from incarceration, which is pretty interesting. Hopefully we can hear some details on that as well. Again, our guest joining us live, appreciative for him sharing a bit of his time with us, Professor Randy Blazak. Uh, Professor Blazak, are you with us, sir? Yeah, I am. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for that intro. For sure. Thank you for sharing some of your time with us. Uh, for our listeners, this might be their first time hearing about you and the work that you do. Anything you think would be helpful for listeners to know about you as we get started? Sure. I've been a, a sociology professor at Portland State uh, since 1995 and recently left Portland State to do some other work. I'm, I'm currently teaching at the University of Oregon, which is down in Eugene, Oregon. 
uh, and doing some work with a group that you might have heard of called the Southern Poverty Law Center. Mm-hmm. Um, so my my whole life, and you know this from having read the blog post, started on a path of trying to understand issues of racism, white supremacy, and uh, hate crimes. And, and there's a whole lot of issues around that, including some of the stuff that's going on in prisons maybe we'll get to talk about. But, you know, I had an opportunity to figure out what, what my um, – life course interest was going to be. And I think, you know, starting, starting very early, including at that BB King show, I kind of decided that this is the thing I really wanted to focus my attention on. And, and, you know, when I, I, I'm, I'm, I've been around the block a few times, I'm 51 years old. So I probably thought by the year 2015, we wouldn't have to worry about these issues, but here we are continuing to deal with some of the same old issues over and over and over again. So, so, uh, you know, these issues are both complex and simple at the same time. And sometimes it's frustrating to see this things like this pool party um, being broken up by the cops and wonder, you know, how far have we come, really? Same problem, unfortunately. Yeah. Uh, oh, I'm echoing a little bit in the background. If you uh, I guess if you're using the speakers on your computer, maybe if you could turn the volume down a little bit, that might uh Help because I can hear my my own voice reverberating. Oh, I don't hear it now. That's great. Thank you, uh, Professor Blazak. Uh, for our listeners who maybe they have not seen you, uh, so they don't know what you look like. Just to confirm for our audience, number one, you are a white man, and two, in that post, you did say that you are an admitted racist. Is that correct on both counts? Well, no, not an admitted racist. I am. I I grew up in a racist environment. I'm a committed anti-racist. Um, and, uh, you know, I grew up in a clan town, so I very easily could have ended up in that world. Um, and my um, some some people that I knew as as uh, as a kid did end up in that world. And fortunately, I, you know, I went off to college and got a clue, got a loan on a clue, at least. Okay. Uh, hang on one know, second. When I talk uh, about racism, Mr. Mr. Blazak, Mr. Blazak, hang on one second, because uh, you're not going to be with us for the full program. So, I mean, we really got to have as much honesty, no confusion. Uh, Just no BSing for the program. Your blog post, it says, I am a racist. Matter of fact, I can give you the full context. Someone once compared racism to alcoholism. An alcoholic can go for 20 years without a drink, but they still refer to themselves as an alcoholic. I never say I'm not a racist. I learned racism at an early age and it exists inside me. I am a racist. So let me ask again. The question yeah. I asked was, is it accurate? You said you are an admitted racist. Is that true? Right. When you put it in that context, and, and that was where I was going is to talk about it in terms of uh, alcoholism. You know, no, 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 no. Hang on, hang on. Because you said, no, that's not true. And that's what I mean. We got to have okay. straight right. clarity. So is the question, uh, the question is, are you a racist? Yes well, you or have, no. That is not a yes or no question. You have to put it in context. I'm an anti-racist, but I grew up in a racist environment. So much of my life has been overcoming sexism, overcoming homophobia, overcoming disabilism, overcoming all sir, the bigotries. Sir, sir, hang on, hang on. And it's right. not you know trying to be rude or anything. It's just that this happens very frequently in talking to white people. I've said this many times. It's easy to find white people that are willing to talk about white privilege and all the goodies that they get from the system of racism. It's very difficult to find white people that are willing to be truthful to say, you know what? It's not just that I benefit. I'm a racist. And these are the ways that I practice racism. To what you're doing right now, to me, I suggest or I suspect you are practicing racism. It would be very easy for you to simply say, yes, I'm a racist. Just saying what you wrote in the ball post. <laughs> 
and then giving an explanation as to why that's true. Not, oh, wait a minute. No, I'm not a racist, even though you wrote in your blog post that you're a racist. That's what I mean about we can't have confusion. Okay. You can't be jumping around. It's got to be okay. consistent. Be truthful when you speak with us, Professor Blazak. Right. I, I agree completely. But in my blog post, I was allowed to pl put it in context and I would like to have the ability to put it in context here. I just don't say I'm a racist. I that's a very powerful thing to say. I'm I think racism is a horrible plague on our society. And I grew up in a racist society. I grew up in a white supremacist, capitalist patriarchy, and I have all those things inside me. So it's not a yes or no question because it's a complicated issue. So I'm not here to advocate for racism. I'm here to do the exact opposite. So by asking as a yes or no, you have to let me, I know, understand it's your show. And I, I completely understand your point because I'm saying like alcoholism, I have racism in me. I am a racist as a person who grew up in a racist society. I'm also a committed anti-racist. So I have to at least be able to complete that sentence to say I'm both a well, racist. See, the thing is, is that when you started out, you didn't even complete the sentence. When you started out, you said, no, I'm not a racist. And then you went into all this other, which I just have to say is nonsense. And you practicing racism <laughs> to say that, oh, well, patriarchy and sexism and I work against homophobia. And even you giggling right there, because this is serious. This is not it's very serious to play around with. This is people dying by thousands, millions every day. And people like you right. who are a part of that, you are a part of the problem, the terrorism that black people are experiencing when you say that you're a racist. You say you grew up in the birthplace of the Klan. So, I mean, that's, right. that's what I mean. We can't be giggling about this. And I would encourage listeners, pay attention to how many times that happens where you get white people where they might eventually say maybe that they are racist, but then that's got to be followed with all these qualifications. I'm an anti-racist and I'm sexist and or I'm working against sexism or homophobia, all this other nonsense. Pay attention to how frequently that happens and if it makes sense when white people start dumping those buckets of words on you to move away from just saying, hey, let's just sit with the truth of the matter. I'm a racist. No qualifications. Okay. All right. At any so rate, what, let's hang on because I want to move forward. You, we got to roll quick today because you're not going to be with us for the full program. I'll hang around as long as it takes to make okay. this point. Okay. You know, I'm I'm willing to be here for the whole time if that's what it takes because okay. it's important. It is important. I mean, I understand what you're saying. We have to acknowledge that racism is real. Just look at the news today. You don't have to look at the news today. You just have to look out the window to see well, the I mean, reality even, of even racism. Still, I would I would let I would allow you to finish, but it's not whether or not racism is a reality. We're talking about you specifically as yeah. a white man, Professor okay. Blazak, and how you are a contributor, one of the folks responsible for why this is here and not pushing away from that. So moving forward, okay. uh, two things that I want to ask before I get into kind of some of the things that you observed in Stone Mountain, Georgia growing up and, you know, more of the details about all that. But before I get to that, the first one, um, there was an author, he wrote uh, an article right at the end of 2014 and he was talking about racism of course and he got to a point in his essay where he said <clears throat> white people are often sincerely and greatly pained by racism but rarely are they pained enough and my question i've been asking as many white people as i can the first part of that statement do you think it's accurate i want to read it again yeah White people are often sincerely and greatly pained by racism. You as a white man, you've been around a lot of white people all over the country and what have you. Based on your experience with white people, do you think that is a true statement? Do you think that, you know, there are a sizable number of white people who are often 
sincerely and greatly pained by racism. Yeah. Uh, it, it would be a hard sell because, you know, I think part of white privilege is being removed from the problem. And you, it's like seeing something on TV that's on the other side of the planet. You can be pained by it and, and saddened by it, but then you just flip the channel. So I, I, I would take issue with that because I think it's so easy for white people to not see it or to excuse it. And, and that's just the, that's part of white privilege. So I would challenge that statement um, based on my experience. Based on your experience, do you think it's true? That statement, do you think it's a true statement or a false statement just based on your experience? I think it's false. Okay. Thank you. Appreciate the clarity uh, for listeners who are keeping tabs. <laughs> the And I mean, this is another one. It is important because this was in a major publication. This was in the Atlantic. So we're not talking about you yeah. know some high school newspaper or something that's got massive circulation and people read something like that and they think, oh, this is valid for our listeners. I think we've asked double digit white people now. I think the majority of white people that I have asked, they think that statement is false. Uh, they've you know given the reasons the white people that they're around, but most of the white people that I've asked on this program think that as a false statement. Uh, and I do too. <laughs> Record. Um, the next one I want to ask before I get some of your stuff and what you talked about in the blog post, uh, and this is extremely important one in this, uh, just for listeners is one I encourage folks to think about again, you as a white person, you've been studying this, writing about this, thinking about your upbringing in Georgia and what have you, mm -hmm. have you seen any evidence that white people are going to voluntarily discontinue practicing white supremacy racism? Wow, that's a that's a tough one. I mean, I think yeah, I I have seen evidence. I have seen people. You know, if you think of people like Tim Wise, who has really helped to mainstream the concept of white privilege, um, I've seen it with my students. It, but it's such a small movement. I think there's this just mass denial uh, in, among white people that racism is a problem, and and we can get into the how that happens and the psychological tricks that white people play to kind of keep themselves off the hook of feeling responsible for it. Um, so, I mean, it's bubbling. And when we look at the, the survey data, as a sociologist, we're always looking at attitude surveys and we see sort of a general increase in attitudes around all these issues. One of the things, you know, you'll see is people are more likely to live in diverse environments and have friends that are different races and ethnic backgrounds. So there's, a, there's a crack in the wall, but I think the problem is there the mind frame of white supremacy is the dominant mind frame of our society and including the mainstream media. So it, it's happening, but oh, it's so slow. 2015. I mean, what's taken so long? So it's there, but it's not, it's not a social movement or a, a, a massive trend to, to turn this thing around. Um, so yeah, that's my answer. Okay. If I'm just making sure I understood your response uh, correctly, uh, that, people like Timothy Wise, uh, that you see a uh, crack, as you said, uh, that it's, it's bubbling. Uh, I assume that you're referring to perhaps white people who might be willing to say, Hey, this is a problem and we want to go ahead and solve this issue. Uh, if, and I've, Tim Wise has been a guest on this program many times. He also is an admitted racist and even gave a similar response as you did in explaining, uh, that he is an admitted racist. Uh, if that's representative of white people, evidence of white people discontinuing racism, I would have to crack up laughing and just say that I, I suspect you could be practicing racism there as well. I would think, you know, as well as I do, Tim Wise is not representative of most white people. 
I agree. I don't, I don't think most white people in this this country, most white people on the planet, uh, are representative of Tim Wise. Share his thoughts. Uh, are interested in what he has to say, or even if they did read his material, would agree with his analysis and say, yeah, I'm going to switch my ideology, my worldview, my finances, and go about the business of seeing if I can do something about racism. That's that's simply not true. Uh, and I would say that any white person uh, who's not willing to come out and just say that out front, I suspect that they could be practicing racism. Uh, if we want to look at different statistics, you're a professor. I'm sure you have access to more information than I do. Uh, I think the information is pretty overwhelming that things are not uh, improving. If anything, for black people, things are getting worse uh, with regard to racism. They even just had a report out here in Seattle talking about black people, specifically how things are getting worse. Uh, so that would be at least two for me if Mr. Blazak is supposed to be representative of white people who are engaged and acknowledge that racism is a problem and they're working against it. I would say that his responses thus far, I do not believe he's being truthful. In fact, I think he might be deliberately practicing racism by giving these answers that are just they're just totally invalid. Uh, if you even do 10 minutes of research, in my opinion. You know, I got, I got to say, I got to jump in here. I mean, I didn't realize this was going to be a contest or, or it's not a battle. Contest. It's not yeah, a battle. Yeah, it is. Yeah, you're, you're, you're painting it like a contest. And these are complex issues. These are complex issues. And it's not I'm right before. and you're wrong. I didn't yeah, say that. Yeah, they're complex issues. Mr. I'll Blazak, say it again. Mr. I'll keep Blazak, saying Mr. it. Mr. Blazak, right? hang on a second. Mr. Blazak, it's yeah. not a contest. Sure, sure. It's exactly. Well, you're keeping score, even, so I'm thinking. Even beyond that, hang on a second. Hang on a second. You, you allow me to finish my point. <laughs> you're laughing again. That's why I said nothing right. about your presentation makes me think that you're serious about ending this problem. What I will say is that I encourage our listeners. If you say things that to me make no sense, they're not logical. I'm going to say that, and I would do that for any person who comes on this program. I say all the time, I could be in error. I encourage our listeners to process. Sometimes they think, hey, Gus, you're talking crazy. I might agree with the guest. That's fine. But I am going to point out when you say things that are totally <clears throat> absolute malarkey uh, to say that, you know, you think there could be some evidence that white people are working to end racism. That's nonsense. And I'm just going to call that out. Some, when you say things, when you try to convince me that one plus one is 10 or you say things that are that absurd when talking about racism, I'm going to call it out as such. It's not a contest. It's not a battle. We'll evaluate. We'll hear from some of our listeners. They might even agree with you. All right. Now, it's your show. Moving forward. We got that on the record. Moving forward. Giggles again. Yeah. Admitted racist, Professor. Oh, Isaac. yeah. Um, sure so with Georgia, you talk about growing up in the birthplace of the Klan. Just for our listeners, if you could give some context. Uh, number one, for the year, so they can kind of get a grasp when, you know, I mean, well, I guess you did kind of already give us your age. So, yeah, give us the time frame of when. You were growing up in Georgia. Yeah. What, were you, what were you seeing and what were people saying about black people to your recollection? Okay. So, uh, all right. I'll give this a good shot. The, uh, the, so the Klan was, you know, we had the Klan from the construction, the post-Civil War Klan that was founded in, in Pulaski, Tennessee, the Knight Riders. Uh, and then it kind of went dormant for a while, but it had a resurgence uh, in 1915 and became very big in the 1920s. You know, there were upwards of... You know, the numbers vary, but between two and six million Klan members, including President Harding, supposedly was in the Klan. The governor of Oregon, the state where I live, uh, was in the Klan. Uh, and that second generation of Klan started in 1915 uh, in Stone Mountain, Georgia, uh, on the top of the mountain and um, spread uh, fairly quickly from there. Uh, and so that's the, that's the town. The town's main uh, route is named after the Grand Dragon of the Klan, James Venerable. The lake is they marched every Labor Day. Uh, and I saw the Klan 
frequently, um, at least on Labor Day, and I have uh, friends whose parents were, or whose fathers were in the Klan. And so uh, Stone Mountain, for people who don't know, is 11 miles outside of Atlanta. And Atlanta, if you're a fan of P-Funk, you know Atlanta is one of the chocolate cities and it has a kind of strong black power base, birthplace of Dr. King and the civil rights movement. Uh, but Outside of the city, you're kind of in a white rural area, and Stone Mountain is, was one of those white rural areas. But uh, Atlanta was a very growing, vibrant city, so the population of the city began to spread, that sort of urban sprawl. So the rural town that I grew up in became sort of a suburb of Atlanta, which meant it became more diverse, uh, including uh, people uh, who were not traditional white Southerners moving into the neighborhood. That includes people from New York and uh, different ethnicities, including African-Americans. And so one of the things I heard as a kid, and this is the 1970s now, is that if black people move into your neighborhood, property values will, will go down, there'll be more violence in schools, girls will be raped, there'll be more drugs and kind of, you know, I mean, some of the same stuff that you're going to hear now from um, white suburbanites. And so that was common rhetoric. And, and you know, it went unchallenged. Uh, I never had anyone say, no, that's wrong. That's bad information. There's plenty of whites raping people and plenty of whites selling drugs. I never had a single challenge. So I'll tell you this story. And this goes to my, you know, racist upbringing. Uh, 16 years old, I'm in a journalism class, and we have an assignment to write an editorial. And the editorial, that I, of all the things I could have written, this is 1979, of all the things I could have chose to written about, uh, my editorial was, if there is a Black History Month, why don't we have a White History Month, right? And I would have, it would have been amazing if the teacher who was white would have said, Randy, go get your history book. Open up to any page. Every month is White History Month. But instead, she just said, well, that's a very strong opinion. It was never challenged. And I, I never had any of those assumptions that I had been told by the people that I grew up with challenged until I went off to college. And I took an intro sociology class. It was at Emory University. And we used to call it the Everything You Know is Wrong class, where we really started taking apart all the racist, classist assumptions that I grew up with. And I, I knew I, I knew something was not right about them. I suspected that they didn't add up, but there was nobody saying that, you know, other than through the music that I was listening to at the time, which was punk rock. I mean, basically, you know, the only only argument I heard on the other side was coming from The Clash or a Bob Marley record or something that I would hear, uh, which, you know, no. Those days, it was very hard to get your hands on this music. Um, you know, everybody was listening to Ted Nugent, where, where I grew up, so you can imagine what that was like. Uh, that it wasn't until I, you know, got away from that environment that I heard a counter-narrative that racism and white supremacy were problematic, deeply flawed ideologies that were built upon the oppression of others. Okay. Um, just so I can get more details, more information. Sure. Um, you gave us some of the examples of things that were said about black people and what have you. Um, and you, you know, accepted all of this, what, this is right. what, this is what everybody's into your parents and what have you. Uh, were you hearing racist jokes about black people at this time? Sure. Oh yeah. I, this is something I think is really important. We talked with Dr. Uh, Joe Fagan. He co-authored the book two faced racism and they have a lot of data where they get white students to kind of share, uh, when, they're around white people who make racist comments or racist jokes. And I think it's really important to kind of tease those out uh, because I think they reveal a lot of the uh, the white ideology, the framework, how they perceive black people, how they think about black people. In fact, I think that's one of the few times racist jokes when white people are being honest uh, when mm. they talk about racism. Can you recall, can you share like some of the racist jokes that you heard? 
Well, you know, I can't, but I'll, I'll tell you one thing, and it, uh, um, maybe some of your listeners will remember this. There was a, a spree of killings that was happening in Atlanta during this time, the uh, missing and murdered children of Atlanta. Uh, and kids were, were disappearing. They were being found in the river, and they were all African-American kids. Uh, and all around Atlanta, they were being taken from places when we would go into the city uh, that we knew, places where we would ice skate. And so there was a lot of jokes saying, well, you know, one more. You know, that this was sort of a good thing that all these African-American kids in Atlanta were being murdered. I, I remember that very clearly. Um, and uh, and also, you know, there were things like when you did drive into Atlanta, you know, the car doors got locked. I mean, I remember my mother saying, uh, and she's come a long way on this journey as well, but I remember my mother saying, they will grab you right out of the car, Randy. <laughs> And I've had since then. I've had African American friends in Atlanta say, "Oh yeah, you know, it's very common. I'll be standing uh, about to cross the street and see the, the car doors locked when when a white person sees me standing there." So, you know, that was the type of things that you would hear fairly regularly. Wow! Uh, I, for listeners, uh, that was the first program we did when we came back on the air. Two thousand nine was with Chet Detlinger, author of the list about the uh, so-called Atlanta child murders, Wayne Williams, and how right. uh, that played out the end of the seventies into the early 1980s, was that uh, just the importance of that? You said uh, you were hearing sentiments basically like, good, uh, when a black child would end up dead or missing, like, good, that's a great start. And hopefully, it'll be, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that was that was the kind of thing you heard, and of course, you know there was also, and and maybe you talked about this on your program, a kind of knowing wink that there was probably a Klansman behind this, and that Wayne Williams was the fall guy. Um, that that you know it was probably somebody else, but they just got someone who fit uh, you know the the usual suspect characteristics. So even even in terms of who was caught for the crime, there were jokes made about that. Well, you know, at least they didn't get the real guy who did it, that kind of thing. Wow. <laughs> wow, that yeah. fascinating. Yeah, I know. Fascinating. And just even, I don't want to belabor this, but that is an important incident. I would encourage folks to do some research if you don't know about Wayne Williams and the Atlanta child murders, particularly if you live in Georgia. Um, but just to keep in mind with Wayne Williams, he, he they did convict him, even though it was of not of any children, two adults. Uh, but they right. used a lot of carpet fibers to connect uh, to convict him and saying that these carpet fibers that were found on victims, that they closely resembled fibers that were in a vehicle that he had access to Wayne Williams and or fibers that were in his residence. Uh, just pair that with the reports that have come out in the last month about the FBI acknowledging that they had all this bogus data uh, about hair and that 95 most of the time it was favorable to the prosecution, even resulting in some people being executed. Just keep that in mind uh, when you go back and study that case and they start hitting you with all the, the carpet data. Um, speaking of older cases, since you did grow up in roughly Atlanta area, Stone Mountain, Georgia, did you, was there any conversation ever about uh, the Moores Ford Bridge lynching, 1946? Uh, no, that was a little bit before my time. I don't, I don't know that one. Oh, okay. Okay. It happened in Georgia. It, it just has gotten a lot of attention of late because they're uh, trying to prosecute some of the white killers that were involved in that case are still alive. They've been trying to prosecute them, but it's gotten more attention because of that of late. But uh, they lent, they killed four black people, including a pregnant uh, black female uh, wow. in 1946 uh, down in this rural town in Georgia. And uh, it's a lot of popularity, very well-known incident. They've done even some uh, documentaries about the, the incident. Um 
and even to my point, this is another one where white people can't say they're ignorant because uh, one of the documentary filmmakers, uh, he said that there were a lot of white people who were very informed about what happened with this incident and even knew the names of the suspected killers and still no one has been prosecuted. Um, moving forward, we got the jokes. Can you give some details in terms of how this environment in Georgia, how it trained you to function and maintain the system of racism? Like what were some of the rules, codes that were passed to you either directly or indirectly in terms of this, what's expected of me as a white man, as a racist? Well, I think the main thing is what, what we see playing out in Ferguson and, and St. Louis and, uh, and all the situations we have now is the issue of fear. You know, I was taught at a very early age, and I write about this in my blog, I was taught to be afraid of black people uh, that, you know, and, and this goes back to the, the rhetoric around slavery, that they were uncivilized, animalistic, non-rational uh, violent beings. And so I had to always be careful around them. And, I, you know, as a, as a child, you're hearing this and you don't really have the cognitive ability to process it, especially if you don't know anybody, right? You're just hearing this horror story over and over and over again. It's being reinforced in the media. You know, as a child of the 70s, the one TV show I just was, loved watching was Starsky and Hutch. And who was the black character on that show, right? It was Huggy Bear the Pimp. You know, so there was this this picture that was just sort of brainwashed into me and and my my generation and 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 future generations of the notion of the of the savage black man uh and um and you know not intelligent uh good at sports but it's never gonna you know be the president of the united states i mean you just kind of got this message over and over again and i think when when you see white police officers like the situation in texas respond to black kids at a pool party they're responding on that exact same idea of the black menace the black threat the black savage is sort of ingrained going to hit you over the head with it propaganda around uh the civilized or uncivilized uh nature of people from Africa. And, it, you know, it was just, it was like the water in the South. You just sort of drank it. And it was kind of um, both refreshing and a little bit of a slap in the face to learn that that wasn't true, but it took a little getting over it. And so, that, you know, that's why I wrote that piece, because it was, wasn't, it was sort of the last thing that I was willing to give up was this, this fear issue, uh, because it was just so reinforced and i think we're seeing the exact same thing now i've been reading the comments around uh, the the issue of the the pool uh, pool party i'll call it uh and the, you know white posters say the same thing you know these black kids came into their neighborhood with their loud rap music the police had to do this because you know obviously they are a threat so um i think that's the main thread that runs through my childhood in a clan town to what's happening now hmm What's your response? Because we, we hear this uh, from a lot of white people, even many of the white people that have been guests uh, on this program. Uh, so a lot of our listeners, uh, they, they're interrogating that. And the problem that they see is that white people are dominating the planet. Uh, white people have more power than non-white people collectively. White people certainly have more power than black people in this area of the world or black people collectively uh, worldwide, that there's no reason for white people, no logical reason for white people to be afraid of black people. And that, in fact, they think their suspicion is that white people are just using 
that as a really lame excuse to say, well, oh, I was afraid. I thought that black person was going to snatch me out of the car or I thought that black person was going to do something. They're using that as a justification to practice racism, uh, like Darren Wilson to say, well, oh, I was afraid, you know, he this big hulking black guy. He was a menace and he wasn't listening to me. So I had to shoot him uh, or Michael Braylow, the situation in Cleveland uh, where he was just exonerated. I just said, well, I was afraid. I thought, you know, it was reported that they had a gun. I feared for my life. So I had to shoot him 137 times. That sort of thing. What's what's your response to people who say that this is just an excuse? Yeah, well, it's a little bit, you know, of a chicken and the egg thing. I mean, I think the fear justifies the racism and then, and then the racism justifies the fear. So, I mean, in individual situations, it may vary. Uh, I, I can only speak from my experience and, and what I, I have seen as a person who's been studying this issue for 25 years is that there is there is a real fear out there. But I mean, I, you're, you have a really valid point that that some of that fear is sort of kept up because it reinforces the racism. It's sort of a circular thing. They both sort of run each other. For me, the fear came first because I didn't. That's what I learned at an early age. But I, I, I mean, I, it's a, it's a definitely a valid point that the fear is a is a tool of the to justify the racism. But you know, there, so there's two. Can I make two points here that kind of you know, as the sociologist, I want to make sort of two points here. One is, you know, about stereotypes in general is that people look for stuff that reinforces their stereotypes. So you know, I I do a whole thing in my criminology class about the whiteness of serial killers, the most brutal, vicious, horrific killers in our society are overwhelmingly white males, you know, but we don't talk about that, that as a white problem. Um, so there is, there is people looking for, you know, white kids riot all the time, you know, it's at a sporting event or a rock concert. I listed the whole thing today on the internet of, uh, you know, violence that broke out at heavy metal shows like Woodstock 99 and Slayer concerts. I mean, people just ignore that. And they do this thing called attribution. The white kids riot because they were drunk or there's some, you know, maybe they had bad parents, but the black kids riot because they're black and that's what black kids do. So there's there's that part. But then there, there's the other part that when, when you do look at self-report data, people reporting, you know, are, are they committing crimes or not? You do find a certain elevated, some things are exactly the same across race. For example, drug use is exactly the same across race. In fact, whites have a little bit higher drug rate use than African Americans. The, um, but also there's this sort of cumulative effect of generations of racism that lock people out of the system that make things like gangs an option or make things like a violent pose. So Bell Hooks, who's this wonderful feminist writer, writes about what she calls the cool pose and the sort of position of hypermasculinity of, of urban African-American uh, lower-income men. You know, the, the one thing that they've got is their masculinity since the cops are profiling them and the job system is locking them out and welfare goes to the mother of the child, child not the father of the child. And so they find refuge in this kind of hyper-masculinity that might include violence. So this, when I say it's a complex issue, you know, there are, that's because there is a lot of things going on. It's rooted in an ideology of oppression, and that's the thing that is simple about it, right? There's this, we're, there are all these ways of maintaining the system of white supremacy, but it happens on varying levels. Uh, and, and, and sometimes you are going to have higher levels of violence. You know, why... why um, 
you know, why is the issue around police profiling so intense? Part of it is because the racist policing that's been happening and been used as a, uh, as a tool of white supremacy. But the other part is people are pissed off, right? People are angry and are frustrated and have doors shut and blocked. And, and sometimes you, by any means necessary is the way to go because, you know, we shall overcome just ain't cutting it. So right. it makes that, uh, that much more appealing. Right context of white supremacy context. uh yeah, professor there you go. that's Ren. the word context that's right. the word we've been looking for context thank you professor randy blazak uh folks that are listening in if you all have any questions uh that you would like to ask uh, or get clarity if something's been said and and you didn't understand and you just want to make sure that you grasp what's what's being presented uh feel free you can ring us the number seven six zero five six nine seven six seven six and then make sure to put in the code which is five six four nine four three pound uh you can get in get your question to uh, professor blazak uh don't lollygag he's not gonna be with us for the full program so you know go ahead and get your hand up don't sit around wait till the last minute um before i get to some of the folks who uh called in um, you did say in the report, even though you gave us context, um, you said in the report that you are uh, an admitted racist. You gave the explanation. Uh, what are some of the things that you have done throughout the course of your life to directly practice racism, which directly or indirectly uh, resulted in non-white people being harmed? Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, I guess I, you know, um, let me see. Well, I mean, I think what, the thing that, that is most obvious is that I live in a neighborhood that is very gentrified, and it is a neighborhood that was a historic African-American neighborhood, uh, and I moved into this neighborhood uh, 15, 16 years ago uh, because it was affordable. Uh, as a young professor, uh, I wanted to buy a house, uh, but I recognized that my moving into this neighborhood was a part of the essentially the bleaching of the neighborhood and in the 16 years that I've lived in this neighborhood it has become a lot more wider there's a house down the street that just sold for $619,000 that an African-American woman lived in uh, and now a white family lives in there is a, a uh, ice cream shop uh, two blocks from me where the ice cream is four dollars a scoop uh, and um, it's a dramatically different neighborhood and so I think um, I am part of that trend and uh, it's been sad to see my African-American neighbors leave um, because of the increased housing values and property taxes and um, so I would say I'm certainly a part of the gentrification trend and I have benefited from it. My house is you know, now worth three times what it was when I bought it in 1999. So um, I think that's a pretty clear example of how I, I have personally benefited from uh, um, the white supremacist system. And I'm being completely honest. Mm. I want to point out for listeners, because that just compounds what I said earlier, that it's very easy to get white people to talk about how they, quote unquote, benefit from racism. You're going to have a much more difficult time getting white people to talk about how they practice racism. And just noting because he said uh, those are some of the ways that I benefit from racism. He didn't say these are some of the things that I do to practice white supremacy racism, which I think is much more important. That's getting much more accurate uh, about all of this. Uh, are there any any other examples that you can think of at any point in your life? Well, where- I mean, it's just on that one. I, you know, I would just say that the practice of buying a house in in, in this neighborhood was probably part of that. Um, yeah, uh, 
Well, so, so, you know, when I do talk about acknowledging my own racism, like an alcoholic acknowledging their alcoholism, I would say that one of the things that, that, um, that is sort of deep in that training that I got at an early age is the association of, of black and crime. So I have an African-American family that lives across the street, and there are some teenagers that come over. And, you know, there's a certain uh, – I have a certain feeling when they're, like, out in the street with their hoods up. You know, like I immediately kind of go to that sort of Trayvon Martin thing where I'm like, oh, God, I hope they're not going to, you know, mess with my car because we park on the street <laughs> in my neighborhood. You know, I know, I know. It, it's ridiculous. It is ridiculous. And I, But I'm just like, being honest. You know, I'm trying to be honest here about – that stuff that I learned, and I catch myself because I know we got a lot more problems with white meth heads in this neighborhood than African American teenagers. Um, but that's that's this thing that just sort of pops up, and I, I you know I feel guilty about it, I feel angry about it, but it's it just it's still there, and I have to think, God, you know, I'm 51 years old. That's something I thought when I was 13. How deep was that training I got around that ideology? Um, Do you so? Just on that, what you said about like in your head, right? You say yeah. this is not something you broke, but just in your head, you'll be thinking, oh, I hope they don't mess up my car. Uh, I've heard this from some other white people that they they did at one point in life. They did call black people niggers or they said the mm-hmm. term niggers, even if they didn't you know, say it to their face or what have you. Uh, and they stopped doing that, I guess, at some point. But then still later on, verbal uh, in their head, the voice in their head, they still think of black people as niggers is that have you ever said the word nigger have no you, you know it? i've always it's funny because growing up in the south so my family is from ohio they were part of the steel workers that moved south and mm. so they um they are the what we like to call the plight plight races the southerners use that term uh the northerners use the term jigaboos hmm. yeah so um so that was a word that i heard i you know i'll just say that i heard that word um but uh you know the people who use the word nigger were seen as being low class southerners so there's a classism there too that you know we are also taught to think less of of the local southerners as being kind of inbred hillbillies so there's that element as well but um yeah so not not it's yeah i mean i just i i i love talking about that word because i think there are so many ways to talk about it as a as a guy who grew up with hip-hop from the very beginning from 1979 sugar hill gang like you know that language is is um, a part of my relationship with the world um you know growing up to going to you know going i mean after the bb king show you know i was sort of the one white kid at a at a public enemy show or a one white kid at a dead <laughs> press show you know i mean i i uh, i uh, was trying to embrace my fear you know by um by being a race trader, and I've been called that by the people I study, and you may want to talk about this, but, you know, I've dedicated my life to studying white supremacists, including going undercover in some very dangerous movements and having people wanting to kill me because of it. And so, um, you know, I may identify as someone who grew up racist and has racism in them and is willing to say that I'm a racist, but I'm also proud to be a race trader uh, and do what I can to undo uh, my, white, my own white privilege. Hmm. Did you did you ever because uh, you talk about in, in the piece that you wrote on B.B. King being like this one or I guess you're a small little crew of white people that went to see yeah. B.B. King in Atlanta. Uh, and you just said these other shows that you've been to Public Enemy, Dead Prez. Have you ever been to any of these venues where it was a lot of black people there and been mistreated, harmed, had anybody fuss at you? Been like, you know, you're what are you yeah. doing here? 
Sure, sure. And, you know, it's funny. I mean, I was so uh, this is going to be old school for some of your listeners. So this is Public Enemy uh, Takes a Nation of Millions, maybe uh, opening act MC Hammer and Heavy D and the Boys. So we're going way back. This is at the Omni in Atlanta. So Atlanta, again, is a big African-American city. Uh, my roommate and I Ed, were there and we were walking around and we heard uh, Cracker probably about 50 times that night. Um, at Dead Prez, the, I can't remember the I mean, opening act. It was at one of the uh, black universities, maybe uh, um, Morehouse. Uh, and the opening act uh, had a song that uh, was called Kill Whitey. <laughs> and the whole crowd was chanting Kill Whitey. And the woman I was with said, uh, said I don't feel comfortable here. And I said, it's okay. You're, I'm not Whitey. Are you Whitey? Whitey is someone else. Why is not the people that are here to see this revolutionary music? So, um, I mean, there have been those moments, sure. And I understand it because when I was at the Public Enemy show being called Cracker, I have to think about, you know, an African-American kid who was at, you know, I don't know, a Kiss concert or a country music concert, probably getting a lot worse than that. And, you know, when, when it happens to them, it, there's the whole weight of the history behind it. So I can handle being called Cracker for a little bit. Um, but it was an interesting uh, experience of you know what that feels like on a tiny tiny level. Wow! Do yeah. with with any of the well, I guess excluding the time where they might have called you a cracker and some of the other things that they did at these shows verbally, it seems like didn't get physical. Uh, has there been any setting where a black person, either in the academy or just when you've been out doing this work and talking about these issues, has a black person or non-white person? Period. Have they ever accused you of being a racist? Uh, uh, well, <laughs> yeah, I mean, here's how it happens. It's, you know, I have, um, I have a certain philosophy about people in the white supremacist movement, and that's that they're victims of stupid ignorance ideology. Some of them come from households where they learn this. Uh, and I, I know a lot of former white supremacists who are now doing anti-racism work. And so my goal is to get those people to leave it. I know the people that just want to beat them up, right? Beat them up, but that doesn't solve the problem. In fact, in, in many ways, it makes them even more racist. So my work at trying to get these people out of the movement has in, involved me befriending some pretty horrible neo-Nazis in the effort to show them uh, a better path. And I've been accused of coddling white supremacists and therefore sympathetic to their cause. And so it's, it's a tough situation because... Um, you know, there are anti-racist skinheads who basically just want to beat up all the racist skinheads. And all it does is either makes them move somewhere else where they're racist skinheads or become even more committed to their racism. So I have a little bit of different philosophy, but I certainly have received some flack from that from from the anti-racist community. Well, well wait a minute. These I mean, black people, non-white people, are they the ones that are saying that they think you could be a racist or is this coming from other white people? Because it sounds like it's well, other white mostly, people. Yeah, it's mostly other white people when we talk oh, okay. about anti-racism. I, I, I don't – I to be honest, I've only – and this is – you know, I mean, this ties into this larger narrative uh, that you started the show with is that, you know, people are people of color are often appreciative. They've got someone they've got an ally, uh, just like, you know, Dr. King did that to kind of uh, be a bridge uh, and that it's not just white versus black, that there are there are people willing to work uh, together to you know, dismantle the system of oppression. So I've mainly just gotten thank yous, which are, are nice and appreciation. But, you know, I, I'm not saying I don't know what people say behind my back. So 
They may think that I'm just a, a fair-weathered liberal. <laughs> right. As Malcolm X would say. That's a uh, pretty common trend uh, that we have noted. Uh, many of the uh, white people that do the kind of work that you're doing, talk about racism, maybe use the word white privilege, write books or do blog posts, that sort of thing, that frequent, the vast majority of time, what I've heard is that black people are very appreciative, uh, have very nice things to say about them, might buy their work or come out or what have you. But generally, there's not a lot of uh, suspicion uh, or great interrogation uh, of yeah. what white people like yourself are, are saying or doing, um, which, which I think is incorrect. I think there should be a pretty high level uh, of suspicion for any individual who is classified, identifies as white, as long as the system of white supremacy exists. Uh, can I, can I ask you a question? Well, I was, a question is connected to that. I just wanted to ask you can, but I just want to make sure I ask my question based on what I just said. Do you think that that is logical for victims of racism, non-white people to be extremely suspicious of any individual who classifies is accepted as white? It makes it, it's completely logical. It makes okay. sense. What are the motives behind this person? You know, they may be just wanting brownie points for their, you know, liberal resume. So it's completely understandable. My question for you would be, and again, and I, and I completely think that that's a, a logical thought for people to have, is do you want to attract people to the cause of dismantling white supremacy or do you want to push them away from it? Well, it goes back to when we started the conversation out and I asked if you think white people are going to voluntarily discontinue the practice of racism. Uh, now, and I encourage my listeners when I talk to people, even if it's not on the program, I encourage them to really think, what does it mean to be a white person? That's a, some of your research. You talk about uh, constructing, uh, deconstructing, really, what white identity is all about, getting to the root of that. I think yeah. that's important, too. What does it mean to be white? If you think white people are not going to stop practicing racism, that they're vested in this. They benefit from it. They're not going to stop doing it. If you think that that's what's happening, that's going to have a dramatically different impact on how you process this problem and what you think should be happening to bring about a solution. If you think Timothy Wise, Randy Blazak, Dr. Peggy McIntosh, any of these other folks that you want to name, Noel Ignatiev, that these folks are not serious. These folks are not sincere and they're not going to solve this problem. If you think that's true, well, then there's no need to go out and try and do anything to bring in white people to work against racism. You just need to get non-white people to get a better understanding of what it means to be white and to grasp that they're not going to stop practicing racism. Now, if you think that, you know, these folks, Professor Bla uh, Blazak, Mr. Wise, Dr. Peggy McIntosh, any of these other folks that you can think of, if you think that these white people are legit and they're helping to solve this problem, well then, hey, bring more. <laughs> do what you can to try to bring as many of them in as can. Obviously, I've made my decision on that, but a lot of it's just going to come down to if you think white people are going to voluntarily discontinue practicing racism. I hope that answers your question. Yeah, I, I'm just interested in what the, what the end vision would be because um, the reason I ask that is because a lot of the people that I study, including the people that I grew up in, in the South, have this sort of guilt associated with slavery and oppression and the fear that uh, black people are going to do to white people what white people did to black people, right? I mean, I'm going to just keep it as simple as possible that basically, you know, I mean, you even heard this from these people when Obama was elected that, you know, there's going to be slavery of white people or um, so you, you, you can either have the, the, you know, the system where we're apart. But, you know, when I talk about deconstructing whiteness, most white people have black ancestors, 
right? And the and the same is true on the other side. So it you know there is this art, I think this completely artificial construct called race that we have connected ourselves to. It's very powerful. All right. Um, I'm going to hit some of our listeners with a question yeah. to see if we can nab a question or two from them. And we will hopefully not keep you for the whole evening. Uh, Mr. Demery Ford, did you have a question you wanted to get in for Professor Blazak? Uh, Mr. Demery Ford, did you have a question for Mr. Blazak? Or are you just listening? Yes, you're going to be heard. Yes, sir. Okay. Uh, Greetings, Gus. Uh, greetings to uh, Mr. Blazak. Uh, um, you used uh, an AA member, you know, in the context of uh, describing racism. Uh, denial is a big part of uh, recovery from alcoholism, and I assume that it's probably the same thing with racism. But my question uh, first, what is the uh, white genocide? project and my next question is what difference can an anti-racist make while enjoying and benefiting from the system of white mm-hmm. supremacy at the same time all right thanks Great. Wow. Very good. So, well, thank thank you very much for calling. And the denial is certainly a huge part of it. I mean, I think there's a parallel with alcoholism right there. It's denial, and, you know, as a person who grew up with racism, who is a racist, uh, I'm sure I engage in the denial as well, even though I'm engaged in anti-racism. Uh, the white genocide, pro- uh, white genocide project is sort of the new, uh, the new version of uh, the white supremacist neo-Nazi movement. It's basically uh, an argument that takes two fronts. One is America is becoming less white, and so therefore uh, whites have to fight to maintain the culture that they've created. And the other part is the, this uh, Orwellian tr- attempt to rewrite the phrase anti-racism is anti-white, that anybody that's working against racism is working against white people. It's a fairly small movement, but they have had access to a lot uh, of money to produce flyers and put up banners and pop up in unlikely places, you know, banners with uh, bridges over the freeway and things like that. Uh, and But they're connected to a neo-Nazi group called the National Socialist Movement that's been around for a while. Uh, and it's just, um, you know, the... the uh, the reason I'm spending a little bit of time on the White Genocide Project is that they are really targeting uh, school-age children, especially high school kids, uh, who are in environments that are changing, whose schools are becoming more diverse, uh, and giving them a cause. You know, the, the, the black students have a black student union. Where is their student union? So um, it's sort of a new face on an old ideology. Now, the last question is, you know, gets at the heart of this whole conversation that Gus and I are having about um, how can you be anti-racist and enjoy the privilege of, ra- of racism? I mean, I completely understand that and you know i don't know what to do about that other than to keep fighting against white supremacy and dismantling my own privilege wherever i can whether it's in the court system whether it's in housing lending uh, i mean i you know on all fronts uh, personal relationships political situations pointing it out on the media pointing it out in the news uh it's you know i'm in this wonderful situation, you know, I, I say that in quotation marks of being the beneficiary of white privilege, but I'm also doing, I also see it as an unjust, not just ideology, but political system rooted in genocidal oppression. 
so I'm, you know, I'm having my cake and I'm eating it too, I guess you could say, where I am. I certainly enjoy the benefits. I know I'm less likely to be pulled over by the police. I know I'm more likely to get a, a housing loan. I know, you know, all kinds of things that I'm more likely to do because of the, the color of my skin and the color that I uh, have been deemed by society. Uh, but I'm also working as best as I can, uh, as, best, as best I can to undo that. So it's it's uh uh it's certainly i don't know if you would call it hypocrisy i would call it kind of uh you know being in a kind of a catch-22 situation i don't know how i mean maybe maybe our host would have a better way of describing it you're you're uh you're quite articulate on this issue practicing racism that's how i would describe it did that answer your question mr dimmy uh yes it did thank you very much Yes, sir. Thank uh, you. The caller at 7537, did you have a question uh, for Professor Blazek? Uh, 7537, did you have a question? Yes, yes, sir. Good evening, guys. I have a question to the guests. Uh, what are you willing to sacrifice in order to abolish racism and white supremacy? Oh, wow. Okay. Um, that is a powerful question. Um, well, you know, I mean, what is, I'm sorry, I, answering uh, succinctly. Yeah, I would say if I were to answer that, well, one of the things I, I certainly would be willing to sacrifice is the, the the privilege I experience in the criminal justice system. I think we need to have a, a system that removes racial bias from police, you know, whole system from policing to prosecution to sentencing to prisons and parole. And the whole system is embedded in prison. I'm sure you're familiar with the new Jim Crow, Michelle Alexander's book. Um, and so, uh, you know, I'm, I'm certainly, I think that I should be as scrutinized by law enforcement and, and as likely to be shot by the police as my black neighbors. I mean, that is something that just seems obvious to me that I should be willing to give up um, that, uh, you know, when it comes to sort of the institutional racism around economics, I think that's also something. Uh, uh, as a homeowner, uh, having lived through the uh, predatory lending uh, trend, if you can call that, I would call it a mass mass crime, uh, organized crime effort. Uh, I, I, I certainly also benefit from, from that because of the bundling of loans that were that were purposely targeted at lower income African American people. Uh, I know my housing loan was bundled in with those folks uh, and uh, many of those folks who lost homes. And I think that that system is completely unjust. And I and it, there has been a lot of movement to undo it, but there are still vestiges of that in 2015. So those financial things, I think, need to go. If it's harder for me to get a loan, it's harder for me to get a loan. If it's harder for me to walk down the street without being stopped by the police, you know, I mean, these are things uh, to if I were to come up with, you know, what sacrifices just off the top of my head those would be two that i would think would be obvious well the reason i ask the question is because um those things that you said that you were willing to sacrifice i don't think that would actually replace the system uh, and, uh, and my question is were you willing to sacrifice in order to uh, abolish the system that to me doesn't seem to be 
so yeah. that you no, I, I understand. I was yeah, I I want those things were uh, would abolish the system. So I will repeat my question. What are what are the things that you are willing to sacrifice in order to abolish the system? Meaning that after those things are sacrificed, the system no longer exists. Right, right. No, I see what you're saying. I mean, the, the system still is upheld by an ideology. Well, yeah, I, I, it's it's a broad question because, you know, the what I'm willing to sacrifice is the, the general privilege that I experience because of my skin color. Um, I, you know, I don't know how to answer it other than that, that I, I'm... I see, you know, how that privilege is manifest in things like policing and things like lending and, you know, all those institutions. But we're also working towards changing the system. I mean, I, I think the change is, as a sociologist, the change is going to be slow. I don't think it's going to be revolutionary. And I'm just being honest from my own perspective. Um, so it's going to be within system so it's going to be a, a tweak here and a law there um but i think the future is you know i like to say the future is brown um my um my people <laughs> the white people who build a system to reinforce their power uh are uh the, according to the census predictions will be uh the uh, in the the smaller category and by the year two, 2050 um, there'll be more people who are not white than white. Uh, and I think the system will change just because demographics are going to change. Um, but yes, you know, there you are, are, there are things that need to be completely, well, let me just make this last point. There are things that do need to be completely abolished. And I would say, you know, the, the first thing that needs to be abolished is the whole prison industrial complex. I mean, we could go off on a whole tangent on this, but I think the, the whole prison setup in this country is something that's there to reinforce, what slaver where slavery ended the prison system took up so i you know i think that is something that um a hundred years from now will will be dramatically different than what it looks like now uh the caller is seven five three seven if you could hang tight i just wanted to try and get all yeah. the folks that dialed in sure for, uh, i'm happy to i'm happy to hang around oh okay uh the caller at nine seven six nine no apologies no apologies uh, the caller nine seven six nine nine seven six nine. Did you have a question for Professor Blazak? Your line should be open. Yes. Um, hello, um, Professor Blazak and Gus. Um, Professor Blazak, um, you said that you're willing to to get shot like black people. Um, was that was that correct? With what you said. Yeah. In terms of. Hello? The, the the how the police plays out on the how police interactions play out on the street i think everyone should have, it sounds like a horrible thing to say i think everyone should have you know the same chance of being shot by the police um you know i say that and and because i come from a different perspective about policing i would like to change the the, the model of policing uh to one that's a more community policing oriented where nobody is getting shot right? and then the police are supposed to work for us but um so you know I'm, that's the context of that Okay, so um, would you be willing to risk your life to eliminate the system of white supremacy in that sense? Well, I have, I, you know, I, I mean, I feel like I have risked it. I spent uh, seven years undercover inside the white supremacist movement, uh, and I've had um, people 
threatened my life on numerous occasions, uh, including from the inmates that I've studied over the last few years. So I I don't want to die, but if I were to die for this cause, I would uh, I would think that I would be remembered the way I want to be remembered as having this as primary mission in my life. So hopefully I live a long life, but um, but if I were to go out on the struggle, um, I think that'd be okay. Okay. Um, I remember that you said that um, you saw, uh, I guess, black people across the street with hoodies, and um, you had some, uh, I guess, some fears about them. Yeah. Um, was that your greatest fear um, when it comes to black people? Yeah, I think, um, yeah, there's just this, this kind of association of, of black, especially black males and crime that I grew up with that, that is still is still sort of in the back of my head, you know, it still pops up, even though I think it's silly and, uh, you know, it doesn't make sense, especially in Portland, Oregon, where most criminals are white. Um, but, uh, and, I, and I understand how hurtful that that is. You know, I understand, that's why, you know, my heart breaks when I see this, the pool party fight or all these things that keep happening over and over again because I know the emotional, and I've, and I've used the term terrorism, that, you know, what, what the police have done have the same effect as terrorism on people. You know, why, I, I understand why people are so frustrated, especially people of color are so frustrated with the police because, you know, that it's not just a one bad cop that does this. It's an ideology that's out there. And so I'm acknowledging that, you know, I bought into that ideology and it still resonates in the back of my head, even though I disagree with it and I want to dismantle it and I feel guilty for it and silly, for lack of a better word about it. But, yeah, but yeah, there's that fear. And, and, it's, it's, it, and, and, and I apologize for it. I apologize to the human race for it because I know that it is wrong, and not only wrong, but hurtful, that it's deeply emotionally hurtful to people that I love and care about. Okay, um, do you think a, a, a fear of genetic annihilation is a motivation for white people practicing racism? I think for some people, yeah. I mean, they bought into this, I'm, and I'm glad you use that word, genetic annihilation. They bought into this concept of genetic purity of race, that a pure race, you know, if you know about the reconstruction they had the one drop plus rule that if you were one one thirty second black you were legally black and couldn't vote and i did the math that's a, one of your great 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 i mean like four great grandparents uh was black and everybody else was white you were legally you know it just makes no sense but they have this notion of some type of genetic purity which is you know it's almost comical i mean i can't tell you how many of these neo-nazis that i've interviewed over the years have found out that they had a jewish relative or found out they had an african relative or you know i mean on and on and on and they're not pure but but that that notion of the genetic annihilation of the white race is something that certainly motivates especially the the neo-nazis uh, in the movement yeah definitely so uh, hang tight, caller. Uh, the person at 2311, 2311, did you have a question for Professor Blazak? Uh, caller at 2311, did you have a question? Yes, can I be heard? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. I'm not echoing. You're clear. I'm clear. Thank you. Thank you, bud. Um, I just had, you know, uh, 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 just two quick questions, you know. In the beginning, you said the system of white supremacy is um, is complex and it's 
uh, simple at the same time. I want to I want to know if you can um, elaborate on that a little. Yeah. More. Th- and thank you for the question. Yeah, I mean it's simple in the sense of, uh, for two reasons. One, it's based on the uh, the oppression of one group of people by another group of people, and everything around it is to reinforce that. It's the, and simple also for another reason because. The main tool that's used to reinforce it is just ignorance, that people don't know that it exists and people don't know people different from them and they grow up with stereotypes like I grew up with. So it's it's simple in that it's, you know, you could draw it like a box with a line through the middle where you have the powerful and the powerless in that model. But it's complex because it plays out in many different ways. It plays out around gender. It plays out around race. It plays around region, race. You know, I'm in Oregon and, and Oregon has a different racial history than Georgia where I'm from. Uh, and we talk about things differently. It plays out in terms of the complexity of people who are biracial and multiracial. Uh, and it plays out in the, the dialogue. You know, I think to go back to the dialogue between Martin Luther King and Malcolm X in the 1960s about what's the best approach to changing the system and how do we you know, make things different for people living their actual lives on the ground in terms of getting jobs and not getting murdered or lynched. Uh, you know, there are different philosophies about it. So we can talk about the simplicity of it, but we can also kind of get into the nitty gritty about, you know, how it informs black masculinity or how, what happens when you're a person of color, but you're also transgender. You know, then it gets complex very quickly. Yes, yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Oh. The one time you and that said enough for me. Um, I, I I just I don't agree with that. Um, but my second question is, uh, what would be your definition of a good white person? <laughs> well, okay. Well, um, oh, I'm sorry. I, I'm sorry. I, 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 hold on. Oh. I want to I want to make that comment uh, that question um, in the context of the current situation of non-white black people. What would be your definition yeah. of a good white person? Okay, no, I think that's a very fair question, uh, and what I would say is sort of two things. One is a person who acknowledges the presence of a white supremacist racist system that is both personal in terms of people themselves being racist, but also is institutional in our courts and our schools and throughout the whole system, the media, I would say, you know, the first thing is acknowledging it because so many people are in this mass denial that in 2015, I mean, I've had students say, well, white students say racism ended in the 60s. Black people are just complaining now. And I'm like, go, let's really look at that assumption. So the first part is acknowledging it. The second part is working to undo it on whatever level that you think is appropriate. And it may, other people may see it as inappropriate. I, you know, I'm working at what level I, I can do. It might not be enough. I might just be, you know, somebody who is practicing racism more than I'm practicing anti-racism. Uh, but, uh, but to act, to be actively doing it, to acknowledge it. So I am a racist. And to and to do it, I am actively anti-racist. Okay, should black people trust white people who consider themselves well good white people? Yeah, 
Um, I don't think anybody should trust anybody, uh, but especially around this issue, there's reason, and I'm glad you asked that, because there's reason to be suspicious, as we've talked about today. There's reason to be skeptical, maybe not suspicious, but skeptical of the, that level of commitment, because I think some people, you know, want their anti-racism merit badge, and they're going to, you know, go sing We Shall Overcome at the rally, and then go back to watching their, their you know, white supremacist media, and not really think twice about it. So I think I think it really is, and you know, programs like this do a good job of that, of keeping white people's feet to the fire who say they are committed to this issue, of saying, "All right, you know, let's let's do it. Don't just say it, do it." So, um, yeah, there's a reason for skepticism. I, I I I definitely think that that's that's true. But we also were. were hold, 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 hang on a second, sir. Hang on, because we got other people that called in. We got other people that called in. Um, if we have time, I can I can. Uh, Wing back and get your question. We got other people that dialed in too. Just hang tight. Uh, the person that dialed in, uh, let's see, nine. Uh, other person that dialed in, did you have a question? Uh, other caller, uh, I think you're on the free HD line or maybe it's Skype. Did you have a question? Uh, other caller, I think you might be on the Skype line. Did you have a question for uh, Professor Blazak? Hmm, not hearing them, not sure. Maybe they have their line muted or what have you. I'll try and check them as well before we wrap. Uh, caller in Florida, did you have a question? Retired firefighter in Florida, did you have a question for Professor Blazet? Hello? Uh, heard you. I will circle back to get you. <laughs> I'll just hang tight. I'll get you. Caller in Florida, did you have a question? Uh, yes. Uh, I uh, wanted to ask the guest does uh, he thinks does, does he think the best possible uh, action that white people should take would be to uh, organize with white people uh, and directly go against those whites who are practicing racism white supremacy? Mm -hmm. Does he think that's the best strategy that white people should be doing as opposed to uh, awesome. being in our presence on a uh, on a uh, too much of a, of a time spending their time in our presence and in turn uh, I suspect that what the white person is getting is a lot of juice out of that you know mm -hmm. boosting their ego yeah. uh, what, is, what is his take on that yeah that's a great perspective you know I mean white people uh, people of color don't need white people to tell them that racism is, is a problem and we're here for you i mean that that that's sort of the paternalistic uh, white man's guilt thing um, might serve a role in in certain settings including you know the the political spectrum of you know trying to rally votes and things like that, but uh, it's a really important perspective that my audience. When I so let's say I have a class, I love teaching intro sociology. I'll have a hundred students, um, and in, in this this might sound wrong. <laughs> it might sound like another example of pr practicing racism. But when I talk about race in that section of the class, and I spend a lot of time talking about that, I'm talking primarily to the white students because the people of color know this stuff, right? They know the history. They know, uh, you know, the, the, the stories of all the lynchings and the Fannie Lou Hamers. And, you know, they know all these stories. I'm really trying to talk to mi gente, you know, my people, uh, uh, to um, 
So I think, you know, there is a value of that, of going out and, and talking to white people uh, specifically or maybe not exclusively, but kind of specifically about their their privilege uh, and um, and working in those circles. Uh, um, and I do, you know, I do. I mean, I, I do a lot of public speaking around this. I talk at churches and I talk in high schools and colleges and, you know, any basically any place that will ask me, I'll go talk about these things because I feel I need to talk to especially white people. I, you know, I think part of this is I do want people of color to know that they have allies out there who are working against this. And, and, and I've had, you know, I did a talk at a high school uh, about hate crimes that was a white high school that had a new uh, migrant Latino population. And afterwards, I had a you know, young uh, Mexican migrant boy say, you know, thank you very, for very much. It's hell being a student here. I'm glad to see a white person speaking out against this issue uh, of hate crime. So, um, so, you know, we can talk to everybody, but there is a lot of value in white people trying to radicalize other white people on this issue um, because they know they're going to hear it, you know, and, and this is what you hear from the writer. Well, there's Al Sharpton again, or there's Jesse Jackson again, saying the same old things, right? That's the kind of stuff that w the sort of conservative reactionary white people say in the media, they need to see more white faces. Um, so, and this is, again, this is the benefit of privilege is so they believe it. Right. That they, I mean, this is the weird irony of racism is that if a black person is on TV talking about racism, there's a lot of white people that are just going to tune it out. That's just the way it is. If a white person is, well, well this guy kind of looks like me. Maybe I should listen to him. I'm not saying that that's universal, but I'm saying that there are people who would respond differently uh, if it was a white person attacking the white supremacist, capitalist, patriarchy, white male, especially. Um, yeah. So, yeah, great, great comment. Well, actually, uh, I, I was attempting to, to ask a question. But, yeah, a question, uh, question, that's what I meant. Uh, well, uh, in, in the classroom, if you have a, a white and non-white, uh, you, you, what I mean, I mean making, making it your business to not only exclusively uh, take action and I don't mean just talking, also doing yeah. with white people, period, making it your business. Because uh, in an environment where you're speaking about, I can imagine, because I've been in a classroom also, that the white people, and I think you said it, are going to just turn you off. You know, and, and what you're going to get, you're going to get, and I, and I think, you, I think you, you, you probably expect it. I could be wrong. Uh, is a lot of attention from the non-white people, especially non-white black people. I don't care if it's just one of them in the class, but I, I mean exclusively saying and doing with white people. What's yeah. your take on that? Well, yeah, I see what you're saying. Um, well, and, the, you know, I'm, I'm in my world, so as a university professor, right, my world is the classroom and where I do my research. But also where, we, where I've seen this play out is in the, in the state legislature. So we have a, uh, we have a now um, a system in the criminal justice system, uh, of what, and it's there because of white legislators talking to other white legislators that look at the racial impact of any law that the state wants to pass. Is there going to be a disproportionate effect on minority communities if we pass this this law? So um, that came 
mainly, you know, there there were some uh, legislatures of legislators of color, but mainly from white legislators who are committed to anti-racism, to looking for ways of dismantling the the system itself. Um, so, yeah, it's I, I work in my world, and so I, I'm trying to, you know, have as much impact in my world as possible. But I think there's a great value. Uh, to that exclusive let's let's tear down the old white boys club uh, approach. Uh, hang tight, caller uh, in Florida. I want to see if we can nab some of the other people yes, uh, yes, down in. Uh, the person uh, caller on Skype will try again. Uh, see if the line is working. Uh, caller on Skype, did you have a question for Professor Blazak? You should be with us. Hello. Yes, sir. Okay. What are some of the ways you have noticed your wife practicing racism? Notice my notice myself practicing racism. Your wife. Oh, my wife. Well, my wife is <laughs> my wife is Mexican, um, and she'd have to speak for herself. I mean, she certainly has experienced racism um, as a person who came here as an undocumented child. Um, so she she has certainly sensitized me to the incredible ways that brown people experience racism, uh, and uh, so I don't I can't I can't speak for anybody but myself. I don't, I certainly don't want to put her. Um, I mean, we could go get her if you want, but um, yeah. I mean, I think her as a as a brown person has a particular experience uh, of colonization. You know, she's an Aztec and she has to live in the white man's world where that's often turned into, uh, you know, a, a Taco Bell. So um, she's very sensitive to these issues. She sees it all the time and points it out to me and is good at pointing out, you know, where I may be uh, assuming my own white privilege and not challenging it. Uh, I hope I can, that answers as much. I, can't mind, I thought she was a white person. Yeah, no. Do you have another question, or is that? Yes. Uh, what are you going to do? Uh, what are you going to teach your daughter about practicing racism? Oh yeah. Well, good. It seems like you've done a little bit of research on me. Uh, yeah, I have a beautiful daughter. Um, she's. Uh, nine months old and that's god that's such a good question and that's something i i want to uh write about in my blog which is called um watching the wheels uh, which is really about her about raising uh a girl in this society um so wow that's such a good question well i, I would say the first thing is to to acknowledge the experience of others you know the the, the first thing i want to do is not teach her racism i mean it's sort of the first thing i want to do is what i didn't have done for me as a kid growing up you know i don't want those messages uh to come from her home they'll, they'll, they'll come enough from the external society so i want to interrupt racism to borrow that term uh and to teach her how to speak up for other people so we do an exercise in one of my classes and it's called interrupting racism about how to respond when people make a racist comment. Uh, 
and you know write it off as a joke or say they were just kidding so you know there there are people who will just let it fly and say well it's not my problem but you know we want to train people to step up and and point out when people are being bigots or when they're being hurtful to other people so um so there's two answers to that really really good question the first is i want to not teach her racism and the other is i want to teach her to stand up against racism on a on a personal level Okay. Um, yeah. Thanks. I have a great idea for a blog post, so thank you for that question. Yeah. What do you think, as a uh, admitted racist, can you do to stop white people from practicing racism? I mean, what yeah. Well, that's. Yeah, that's the big that's the big question. I mean, white supremacy is a continuum. So you have the extremists, you know, the neo Nazis who want to murder. You know, Timothy McVeigh, the Oklahoma City bomber, was a virulent white racist. He wanted to start a race war in America. That's why he, he ended up killing those 168 people in Oklahoma in 1995. I mean, you have that sort of extreme. But then on the other end, you have the kind of um, polite racism, and, and, and you may have included people who call themselves anti-racism who benefit from uh, white supremacy. So white supremacy is a continuum, um, and my work is really in how to get people to leave white supremacist groups, organized groups. Now, of course, we can make an argument that the United States government is a white supremacist group, and I'm certainly open to that discussion, but I'm, I'm talking more about the groups that want to do violence, that want race war. They call it ROHOA, racial holy war. I mean, I'm focused on those extremes. That's been the work that I've been done. And so the answer to the question is you make it harder for those groups to recruit uh, young people and you make it easier for people to leave those groups and become former white supremacists. Mm -hmm. uh, appreciate that. Uh, questions yeah. from our uh, listener there. I'm just trying to nab. It's a whole lot of people dialed in later in the program, so I'm trying to get yeah. to folks before you <laughs> exit as possible. I guess they've yeah. been engaged by your commentary, Professor Blazak. Uh, the caller at five nine seven. Yeah, I'm happy. I'm happy to talk. I mean, these are great comments. For sure. Um, yes, can I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Go ahead. Um, hi, I'd like to ask the professor. In your opinion, do you believe that interracial marriages and relationships help? Or, uh, or uh, help, or detriment uh, in, the, in the fight against racism, white supremacy. Yeah, a beautiful question, and there are two completely different ideas about this. And I'll, I'll say this as someone who is in an interracial marriage: um, the uh, you know one side is you know we want to maintain some separateness, so our distinctiveness. And diversity doesn't go away. We become sort of the gray races, it's been called, where we have sort of people who are uh, don't have an identity connected to a, a racial or ethnic category. And we see this, you know, most commonly among uh, Native Americans. You know, people have lost their tribal identity because they've been forced by the system to find mates often outside their tribes and... Uh, and so that tribal identity goes away, and that's a sad thing. Um, the other side of that is that ultimately those categories are man-made categories, man-constructed categories, and so um, they, they only have as much power as we give them. So why not blur the color line? I mean, we have, we have a, a president who is a biracial person. We have uh, 
10% of the population that identifies as two or more races, according to the 2010 census. So um, it, it does both. So there's this, I think it highlights the fallacy or the kind of what I would call the bogus human social construction of race, that we created it and then we let it have power over us. But it also means we give up some things that are wonderful about our diversity, that we are different in terms of complexion and culture and musical taste and heritage. And so, um, but the, the, the answer to your question is there's nearly 8 billion people on the planet. So I think there's room to do both. You know, these white supremacists that I talk about think the white race is going to disappear. Utah. Now, the white race isn't going anywhere, right? There's plenty of white people to go around. There's been around for a long time. So, let's half of somebody who's not white and has children. There's still going to be billions of white people on the planet. So, you shouldn't, you know, be willing to become a genocidal Nazi maniac because you think the white race is going to disappear. Um, and But I also understand the impulse to maintain uh, the heritage. And this certainly happens within African-American communities, too. You know, I mean, we're, we're kind of talking a lot about white supremacy, but the ideology has been adopted by everybody, including among African-Americans, some African-Americans, many African-Americans who believe that a person who has lighter skin has more value, especially as a mate. Uh, I mean, that is the the internalization of the white supremacist ethic. And then we see it in our media, you know, Latino culture, that when you turn on uh, Univision, you're going to see a lot of white-looking people who speak Spanish because Latin culture is rewarding the lighter-colored people and the mestizo or darker-skinned people are, are still devalued. So it happens within racial groups as well. So um, I'm all for interracial marriage, uh, but I also understand that people who want to maintain their distinct uh, lineage um, – yeah. Again, here's your, a complex. I'll ask you one question real quick. Is your is your wife is she a, a lighter skin uh, Latina? Yes, she is lighter. Darker? She is lighter skin. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. So there you go. Okay. Right. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Uh, caller at nine two eight one nine two eight one. Did you have a question for Professor Blazak? You should be with us. Oh, yes, I have a question. Um, Speak up, please, sir. Please speak up. I'll start off. Can you hear me? Can I, can I be heard? Yes, sir. Okay. Well, yeah, I have a question. Um, well, he kind of kind of um, got around to my question when he was talking about his wife, how his wife is a victim of colonialism. But um, I'll probably start off with the first thing that's on my mind. I heard him say that we kind of adopted the same mentality in the African American community where the light skin we looked at the light lighter skinned person is better. And a lot of people have babies um with white people, you know, to have a lighter skinned child. And I have to just disagree with them, not because that the lighter skin is better. They just want light to be easier for their offspring. And the offspring, if it's a lighter-skinned child, would not be subjected to racism as hard as it would be if it's a dark-skinned child. And that's one of the problems with white people having babies by non-white people in the first place. Because that 
they know that they have a system against them and they make it harder on them. So it's only a survival tactic. It's not because they look at the light, light of skin and person as in favor. It's, you know, it's a race war. That's, you know, I disagree with him um, about the fact that he's talking about the Nazis want to have a race war. No, the race war, America is a war. The war is a war. White people are, are, are carrying out war on the whole non-white population all over the globe. But I will get to my question. And my question is, since his wife is subject to, people have been subjected to colonialism by white people, if you look all over the world, a lot of places, white people have give, are, are given these governments I'll give uh, the we have other people that have uh, questions. Questions, so, questions, sir? Questions? Because uh, we, we have other people that want to get into. Do you have a question? Okay, yes, sir. I'm getting, I'm getting a question. In the United States, do you see the, the white people in the United States giving the Native Americans back their land? And how serious do you think that could be? Of, Giving back the Native Americans their land in the United States and in Canada. Yeah. Well, um, yeah, uh, you know, I mean, I think you know, the answer to that question, which is the you know the reservation system is completely disrupted. The, the, the culture of so many tribes, including uh, in Oregon where I live, you know, you, you sort of give them a, a casino as guys. Um, and uh, so, you know, there's the race war, right? The race war started. I was uh, I was doing some work on a, uh, at the Warm Springs Reservation, and Native elders came up to me and said, uh, Dr. Blaze, like, you know when it started to get bad for us? And I said, no. He said, when Lewis and Clark showed up, you know. So it's since, since then, it has been um, a race war. And... Um, in, in those terms. And, I, you know, I, I understand those terms. And, and I just want to make a point about the beauty issue. You know, if there's one book that I've assigned more than any other book to my students, it's the autobiography of Malcolm X. And there's a wonderful part in that where he realizes, you know, he's been straightening his, his hair. He's been using lie to straighten his hair, this painful process to make himself look more like a white man, that, you know, that was a very symbolic of the torture uh, to meet the sort of white standards, and then he rejects it, you know, and out of that becomes the the Black is Beautiful movement, uh, and a whole change in just the way people are presented. But but you know that um, movement in the '60s is almost in a certain way a historical footnote because even though uh, I mean I I really understand the notion of having makes perfect sense, but the the media certainly reinforces the notion that. that lighter skin is is more desirable um and uh and there is a counter narrative to it but it certainly you would think it would be stronger in 2015 and i think that's because there's money to be when made. you there's say money. when you say the media do you mean white people or, uh, yeah sure the white media? corporate oh. media the white corporate media that's going to make money off of hair relaxers it's going to make money off of skin lighteners it's going to make money off of blue con contact lenses it's going to make money off of the whole Racket, plastic surgery, so they look and, more like and I, I agree I'm, with you. I agree with you. But the answer, the answer, to my question: Do you see that white people who are who have a criminal government? Do you think they will totally give the land back to the Native Americans, like they gave, um, you know, other countries back in, in Africa, back their country? 
somewhat, do you think that they will give this country back to the native people? Do you think they're serious about no. ever doing that? And, and, no, I don't. No, I don't. I, I don't I, think I appreciate so. Your yeah, no. Along with forty acres and a mule, I mean, I don't. I'm not going to hold my breath for any of that because uh, this is the system of power that we live in. Okay, I appreciate your answer, man. Yeah, thank you. Uh, caller at uh, 2838. 2838, did you have a question for Professor Blazak? Two eight three eight. Are you with us, sir or ma'am? Two eight three eight. Not hearing you. Uh, last time caller, last four digits two eight three eight. Did you have a question, or are you just listening? Okay, I assume they might just be listening. Uh, caller at five two three four. Last four digits five two three four. Did you have a question for Professor Blazak? Uh, yes, sir. Oops, sorry about that. Sorry about that. Go ahead, sir. Five two three eight. Go ahead. Five, oh, yes, sir. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Okay. Thank you so much. Um, good evening, Doctor uh, Professor Blazak, and good evening to Doctor and the callers. I wanted to ask, um, Doctor Blazak, do you would you define uh, racism and white supremacy as white culture? And if so, um, would you also define it as white heritage, since it is something that is inherited intergenerational? Yeah. Wow, God, these have been such great calls and, and and such penetrating deep deep questions and comments. I really appreciate it. The, um, yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, the short answer is yes. I mean, I think the the white culture, um, I mean, and culture is so varied, right? Because we have a lot of ethnic groups. I'm a, I'm a Czech person by heritage through my father's line, so I identify with sort of the Slavic culture that's here in America. Um, and uh, so there, there are many cultures in America, but the dominant culture, I mean, I, I, I don't know how many uh, of your listeners have read Bell Hooks, but she is certainly one of the people that I look to for uh, the, the analysis, you know, and she describes that America in very simplistic terms as a, as a capitalist patriarchy, white supremacist patriarchy, uh, and that the culture reinforces all those, reinforces capitalism and, you know, who wants to be a millionaire, it reinforces, reinforces patriarchy, the Miss America pageant, it reinforces white supremacy in terms of, you know, the, the white is right. Uh, kind of ideology that's in policing and education. And, and so, you know, on, on all levels, we can find versions of it. And, you know, this is one of the things that happens when you start seeing it, especially as a white person. I think people of color see it all the time. Um, the part of white privilege is not having to see this, to sort of pretend like all these problems have been solved, or male privilege or straight privilege, uh, that uh, you don't see it. But when you start seeing it, you realize that it is everywhere, including among activist communities. Uh, I was just working on a piece about the Ellen DeGeneres show. She's an out lesbian, but her show is incredibly heteronormative. And if you were to watch it through a, a, a lesbian lens, you would see all kinds of problems with it, even though she is a champion for equal rights for uh, gay and lesbian people. So you, the, the culture is so steeped in this ideology of domination that it happens. It happens on the playground. You know, when somebody is being bullied, they're reenacting or acting out the system of oppression that they're getting from the White House and from Wall Street on down. So I think it's it is just the 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 culture. It's just sort of the air that we breathe, and that's why challenging is important, but it's also fr so frustrating. 
question. Thank you so much for your answer. I appreciate yeah. that. Okay. okay. Uh, the person will try again. Uh, 2838, caller at 2838. Did you have a question for Mr. Blazak? You should be with us. Yes. Uh, can I be heard? Yes, sir. All right. Thank you. Uh, greetings to uh, you, Gus, and to the, to the guests. Uh, my question for you is, um, uh, what is your definition for racism? Yeah, well, this is something, you know, I talk a lot to my students about because, uh, you know, sometimes people confuse the idea of racism and prejudice. Prejudice is just sort of a, you know, an attitude favoring one thing over another. It could be prejudice towards your I'm from Atlanta, so I'm prejudiced towards the uh, Atlanta Braves and against the New York Yankees. But uh, racism is a prejudice rooted in an idea about the inherent inferiority of a of a group of people. And there's actually a a beginning of this. You know, I, I try to sort of put this in a historical framework. How do we think about this notion of people? being inferior. There was a moment when in the early colonial era, this is after Christopher Columbus, uh, you know, makes his famous trip and they realize that there's a lot of cheap labor and a lot of resources to be taken from the land. And, um, they can't get anybody to come and work in the new world to grow tobacco and all these things that need to grow. So these Portuguese, Portuguese traders go to the Pope and say, will you do us a solid? We, we're having a problem since we're Christians, we can't enslave other people because Moses freed the slaves and it would be kind of hypocritical because then we'd be the Pharaoh. Would you do us a favor and classify the people of Africa as non-human so therefore we can justify in enslaving them like cattle? And there is just a document, there's a, there's a document that's written, you can look it up you know, on the internet where the Pope says, okay, the people of Africa are now heathens and savages, they're not actual people. And so you will go and rescue them. You'll take them out of the jungle. You'll give them your religion, but you won't be hypocrites. You won't become the pharaoh and enslaving them. But that process took a, a continent of people and made them less than human. That's that's the essence of racism because we do that. We do that. We do that with gay people. We did it with the Irish for a while. We do it with Thank some different. Thank you for, for trying to answer my question. Okay. I'm sorry yeah. To interrupt, but yeah, yeah. Um, I didn't get a definition. It's the ideology it's like that. This, it's it's an ideology that 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 defines a group of people as as inherently inferior. Okay, and then I have uh, a second question for you. Earlier, you talked about how your wife um, um, was forced into kind of the white man's world. I think that's, those were your words. Basically, uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Okay, um, do you think her being with you is also being in a white man's world? Yeah, and if so. You think that's a sign of confusion? Well, it's a it's a conscious choice. Yeah, thank you for your question. It's a choice that she made uh, to be to see me as a person and not as a representative of a white supremacist capitalist patriarchy. Uh, we're we're both challenging that system together, uh, but certainly she gives up a certain amount of her ethnic identity by being with me. Our child is you know, a biracial child. She's a Chicano. She's not a Mexican. And, um, and, but we're on sort of the same side when it comes to these issues. So, you know, she both gives up something by being in the white man's world, but she also, uh, has access and her child will have access. And she also has the ability to be sort of the spy in the house of love, as I like to say, to kind of be able to, to, 
change it from the inside as well as from the outside. I'm sorry. I do have one last question. Okay. Spark something. Uh, my one last question is you said that uh, she had to give up something. What did you have to give up? And then that'd be my final question. Thank yeah. You. No, no, that's a very good question. I mean, I, I think certainly she gives up more than I give up. Um, yeah. I mean, I give up. I mean, what I would give up on paper in this larger definition about our white supremacist society, I give up a, you know, pure white heir, you know, a pure white child who will carry on my whiteness for future generations. Um, that, that that ain't going to happen. And I'm, I'm completely fine with that. But I think that's what I've given up is the sort of white lineage that has been a part of my family uh, for a long time. Thanks for the questions. Uh, the person, well, I guess before I get the caller at two four seven one, and I know your child is very very young, but just based on what she looks like right now, and you're looking at your own complexion, looking at the complexion of your partner, do you think your daughter, when she's old enough, do you think she'll be light enough that she could pass as a white person? Oh yeah, I, I think so. I mean, in fact, we sort of have commented on how she is whiter than she is browner, so I think she will um, experience her own version of white privilege, certainly. Hmm. Okay. Uh, the person at two four seven one two four seven one. did you have a question for Professor Blazak? Uh, hello, yes, Gus. Um, long-time listener, first-time father. Um, my question yeah. is, <laughs> yeah, my question is, um, I heard you use the term biracial. Um, do you find that term to be confusing? Yes, I do. I do, because I think... Um, as I, as I said, that race is a social construction, uh, and it's one of those categories that's been handed to us that, you know, I mean, I, I could be biracial. My father is Czech, and my mom was from an English lineage. So, you know, there are different characteristics of those two uh, ethnic categories. So, yeah, it is, it's an inherently problematic and almost useless term. I mean, we're all multiracial on some level. Okay, um, I have a second question. Um, what do you think, as, as an admitted racist, what do you think can be done to just end the system of white supremacy, basically? What, what can be done by someone like you, just a regular white person? Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess that's sort of the theme of you know, our, our time together today, is what can be done. Do we, do we do it by changing the system slowly to be less oppressive, or do we just scrap the whole system? Um, and so, uh, you know, in my younger days, I was certainly much more uh, of a revolutionary mind frame. Um, but I also know that revolutions often breed long periods of anarchy and, and terror. If you think about the French Revolution and, and many others, um, sometimes revolutions replace themselves with new oppressors, uh, as happened in France. And sometimes, um, there, you know, there is something that is, you know, even more sinister as in the case of the the Russian revolution. So, um, so I, I tend to be more for the internal turning over, uh, and changing people on a personal level. I mean, I, you know, I, I don't know what this system will look like, uh, a hundred years from now. Uh, but I, what I want to do is really change hearts and minds of individuals around this issue. And sometimes I'm horrible at it. Sometimes I push people in the opposite direction because I can be so obnoxious and such an a-hole on these issues. But I hope over the long course of my work that I've sort of won more people over to thinking about power dynamics and how they benefit or experience oppression. Um, 
so yeah, the, I mean, I, my answer is you just work on a personal level and you don't stop. Okay, that's all. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Uh, this person actually wrote their question and they wanted to know uh, how could a white person like yourself prove that they are quote unquote anti-racist while the system of white supremacy racism is still in existence? Yeah. Well, I love that question. I mean, I don't feel the need to to prove anything to anybody, but I, I'm sure certain people want to know where my heart is in terms of my activities and, uh, uh, you know, in terms of my commitment to this issue. And I think, um, I think you have to measure people, not just on what they say on their actions and, and how there was a caller earlier that said, what are you willing to give up? What are you willing to sacrifice that people are willing to sacrifice something, uh, and acknowledge, um, acknowledge that they benefit from the system as it is. So it's a tough, that's a tough, it's a really good question. It's a very tough question to answer. Um, because uh, I think it's, you know, the proof is when you, the day you drop dead and, and, you know, what the ledger says, did you do more to hurt the situation or help it? Uh, my submission that I give for listeners, uh, we will hand out the badges for the anti-racists once the system of racism has been replaced, then it will be able to, we'll be able to easily identify the people that are responsible for making that happen. And in the meantime, in between time, I don't even give out that uh, title to anyone white or non-white that they are quote unquote anti-racist or any other permutations uh, of that sort of label that they come up with in the future. Uh, I think we hit all of the callers spectacularly. Excellent. Um, the uh, person they were chomping, they had one more they wanted to get in before you depart. Uh, the caller at 2311, did you have uh, one last question to get in before we wrap things up with uh, Professor Blazette? I do. I do. I had, I had a few questions. One? I got you. I got you. I got you. I got you. So, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to call you brother, but, you know. All right. So, does being on this show, you know, like with the, you know, with, with the, the, with the system of white supremacy and you trying to be a good white person, does being on this show make you feel good? And it, uh, I, I think it's challenged me in a challenged way, way that it's important to be challenged. I don't particularly feel good. I feel hungry because it's dinner time. Um, and uh, I, oh, I, I understand what you're saying. Do I, do I give myself a pat on the back for being on the show? You and, feel like you accomplished something. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I mean, I think that's, that's up to you. I feel like I represent, the, I try to represent the work that I do and the perspective that I bring to the table. Um, and, um, and hopefully, uh, hopefully it was of, of value to somebody, this particular perspective. My, I don't know. I don't know. I hope so. I'd, I'd love to know what the, the talk is after uh, we're done here. <laughs> <laughs> no, no further, no further yeah. questions. Right on. <laughs> right on, right on. Um, before uh, you depart, Professor Blazak, I just wanted to get a little bit more detail. It says uh, on your CV that some of the re research that you're doing currently is about 
white supremacists who are exiting prison and how right. they're reintegrating into society and if they're transferring any of these racist views uh, when they reintegrate. Uh, what is what is your research showing on that? Well, I mean, uh, you, groups like the Klan and the neo-Nazis have sort of faded a little bit, but what we're really seeing a, a growth is in prisons and, and people being recruited into white supremacist gangs and prisons. So a white inmate goes into prison and, you know, they're told that if they don't don't join the Aryan nations that they're going to be attacked by black gang members or raped by black gang members. And often it's black gangs working with the white gangs to, to make this case. Uh, and so they become incredibly radicalized. So you probably are familiar with the murder of James Byrd Jr. in Jasper, Texas in 1998. That was a classic case of someone who was radicalized in the Texas prison system to join a group called the Aryan Circle and then came out and was given marching orders to kill a black man within his first few months of being released from prisons. We've seen the same thing in Oregon with a group called European Kindred. Uh, and so it's a big problem. We've had some serious crimes uh, and an escalation in these groups, including biker gangs, sort of like the, the scene we saw in Waco, Texas a few weeks ago. Um, and so it's sort of the, the, not the new problem, but really the emergent growing problem that uh, uh, people who are committed to doing anti trying to stop it that are, are, are sort of behind um, the uptick in this activity. So I'm, I'm trying to kind of sound the alarm around this issue and also work on ways of reducing the problem by giving those people resources other than uh, continued gang membership when they're released from prison. Are there uh, going to be any like publications to give out a little bit more information on this? this would be yeah, there, I can, I, in fact, I can email you a list if you want to post them. I have a, a journal article called The Prison Hate Machine that's about this issue that came out a couple years ago um, and has been widely read, including by policymakers. Um, so I, I, it's called The Prison Hate Machine by Randy Blazak. You could probably just Google it and find it on, online. Um, and uh, that'll kind of give you a, a, at least an introduction to the problem. Okay, I will do that. When uh, I put my hands on it, I'll put it on my Facebook page. So if listeners, Fantastic. if you all want to check it out, you can do so. Uh, if I could get one, one quick request as well, your dissertation, uh, The sur uh, Suburbanization of Hate, the Evolution of Racist Youth Subculture, is that something that uh, I could read? Um, yes, you, you probably, you would have to go to the Emory university library. They may, they may put them online. Uh, dissertations are sort of put on a shelf and aren't typically published. So you may be able to find it online, okay. but I'd be happy to share it with you. Okay. If I can't track it down online, yeah. is that something like you have a file that people, you know, you could email sure. and I could just read it that way. Okay. Yeah. Great, great. I would like to check that out, too. Uh, again, our uh, guest for the evening uh, ended up hanging for the whole two hours after all. Yeah, uh, I couldn't go away. The conversation was so good, and I felt challenged uh, and engaged. And, again, people called in with such thoughtful things that my mind is kind of reeling. My white brain. <laughs> Fascinating. Uh, you can, again, you can check out the post uh, that we were talking about. I have it linked in uh, the description for the program, uh, his reflections on B.B. King. And then, uh, as I said, if I can get some of the other journals and what have you, I'll just post it on Facebook so you all can do additional research. But uh, thank you kindly for sharing a bit of your time. No longer at Portland State, but now University of Oregon's uh, right. Professor Randy Blazak, admitted racist. Thank you kindly. And uh, <laughs> we will hopefully have you on the program again in the future, sir. Okay. You know where to find me. Yes, sir. Take care. Bye. Right on.
Context of white supremacy. Fascinating. Mm. Um, we uh, We will take a quick commercial break, and then if folks have any comments they would like to share, we can make time to do so. Um, if folks have anything they want to get in on the whole, uh, pool situation, we can make time for that as well. Although, um, I can't say that I was as surprised, uh, or riled up about all of that. Um, as other people, I mean, certainly I don't, I don't, you know, want to see any black children being harmed or terrorized, uh, when they're just out, you know, frolicking, enjoying the summertime and warm weather like everybody else. But, uh, that happens every day. I mean, black, ch- I mean, that happens every day. I don't know how anybody could be uh, alarmed or surprised about this, given what we have seen uh, over the last year. But uh, even even here in Seattle, I think it was 2009. Uh, it was a black female. Uh, I think she was only 14 or 15, but they were, I think, jaywalking some real trivial uh, offense. But I think they were jaywalking as they were walking home from school. And this uh, white race soldier jumped out of his car and fussed at all of these black. It was all black children fussed at all of these black children, ended up grabbing uh, this black female. Once they were on the sidewalk, grabbed her and punched her in the face. And I mean, not like a, you know, a tap or something, but I mean, like a holding off and smacking somebody like you're in a in a heavyweight fight, uh, bold fist, bam, right to the face. And they got this on video and put this up. So, I mean, see this sort of thing every day under the system of white supremacy. But I know a lot of people are talking about all that so if you have any thoughts on that as well that is fine uh but we'll take a quick commercial break and then uh we will be right back context uh <laughs> folks are coping i hope they uh are surviving in the background we'll get a little water if you need uh to clear your throat or what have you but we will be right back after our commercial break context of white supremacy the internet is full of half truths and all-out lies We've all seen them, and many people on social media complaining about it. Here's your chance to show and prove. WorldAfropedia.com is a black-owned and operated encyclopedia. There are several thousand articles, but we need help. We can't uncover all the truth ourselves. So please, join us and become a writer, editor, or blogger for WorldAfropedia.com today. Every little bit counts. We owe it to the future generations to put the truth out there. Visit worldafropedia.com, the African-centered encyclopedia, a global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. Worldafropedia.com. Racismdaily.com, your number one source for global news reports on race, racism, and overt actions of white supremacy. From Asia to the Americas to Europe to Australia to Africa, racism is not a thing of the past. It is our current reality. Be informed. Be globally informed. You should be the first to know. Racismdaily.com. 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 Is racism hurting you? On issues of race, are you unable to speak, think, and act with clarity and confidence? Are you tired of laughing when nothing is funny, smiling when you are not happy, agreeing when you really disagree? At 
counterracism.com, you can learn specific strategies and techniques to counter the behaviors of the people who practice racism in all areas of activity. Using words correctly, following counter-racist logic, even counter-racist science projects designed to reveal what racism is, how it works, and how to counter it. The open source code writing format allows you to pick and choose from a variety of counter-racist suggestions so you can produce the code that works for you. Stop by counterracism.com today and help replace racism with justice. That's counter-racism.com. Do you need a one-stop shop for all of your multimedia needs? Triumphant Multimedia is a skilled team of professionals with a passion for great marketing and chic design. Our specialties include consulting, brand development, copywriting, and creative graphic design that's second to none. We also offer photography, photo retouching, videography, and video editing. At Triumphant Multimedia, our goal is to provide highly effective creative solutions built to suit any individual need or budget. Give us a call at 678-732-8067 or check us out online at trimultimedia.com. everyone welcome this is justice with the cows radio program if you want to learn about understand and counter racism white supremacy be sure not to miss a cows episode we keep them jammed packed with constructive information to sharpen your use of words to help eliminate the system of racism white supremacy asap also to be able to invest in my counter racist efforts co-hosting the cows radio program please visit my blog just do justice today here's just saying just buckets and buckets of words context of white supremacy uh we should be back on wednesday uh we'll have to uh tell folks uh, I was a little bit looking ahead on this program. Um, I didn't have too much regard for uh, the scholarship of uh, Professor Blazak. I do want to see his dissertation uh, on these young white people. I'm always very interested uh, in reports on young white people, white children practicing racism, because that just further gives me more ammunition when people talk about how things are changing and it's just these old decrepit racists. Uh, like Donald Sterling or Paula Dean, it's just these old fogies, and once they die out, everything will be cool. Uh, that that is utter nonsense. So I do want to check that out, but I, I don't. I didn't really have much respect for his uh, scholarship or what he had to offer uh, with regards to research on racism. Uh, what he shared on the program didn't change that. The white person who's coming on the program on Wednesday, that person I am looking forward to. Uh, I have been reading her book since Friday. Uh, the guest Beryl Satter. Uh, she wrote the book Family Properties. It's all about racism specifically in Chicago. I would say for folks for this program, you should connect the program with NDB Connolly from April on uh, a world more concrete, kind of the history of racism uh, and real estate in Florida, Miami specifically, 
and then the program with Andrew Carl, a suspected racist. He was with us last uh, month. His book, The Land Was Ours, that talks about how white people uh, strategically stole, looted beachfront, waterfront property from black people. Keep that in mind with the whole pool situation this weekend. Uh, And then this, because these books are all dealing with black people as landowners, property owners, and how white people have strategically and efficiently uh, confiscated black property. Uh, In fact, Nathan Connolly, he says that uh, white people have gotten increasingly efficient at this process of taking black land. I even think you heard Randy uh, Blazak when he said about property taxes in Oregon, you had all these black property owners and now they're being booted out, what they call gentrification, AKA racial, racial dislocation. That's what this book is all about. The history of how this has played out in Chicago over about the last century. Um, I, for many reasons, suspect this white woman of practicing racism somehow in this story of economic terrorism a white person is center stage, her white father. She's talking about how her white father, he was an attorney in the fifties and sixties in Chicago. And he helped uh, to the best that he could in a very weak position. He tried to help a lot of these black people who were being evicted and just, I mean, totally looted. They were just stealing thousands of dollars, tens of thousands of dollars. She writes in the book that this was an enterprise where literally her white father observed really calculated that white people were stealing about a million dollars a day from black people in Chicago. Now, this is 50 years ago, just with the real estate and cheating them out of money, property. I mean, it's just it's heinous <laughs> reading all of this, but great information. I'm really looking forward to having her on the program this coming uh, Wednesday for a myriad of reasons. Uh, if I could give you a quick uh, snippet from the book is so many uh, different passages that I've highlighted. I'm going to make sure I don't lose my place here as I share, but this is just one incident uh, of many episodes of terrorism in Chicago. If we got any uh, listeners in Chicago, I would definitely recommend that you get this book. Uh, This should be in your, uh, don't purchase it. I've said that consistently. Uh, We shouldn't be buying books that white people write. They should not be making a profit from giving up information about the terrorist deeds of their family members friends, white racist ancestors, but you can certainly get this book at the library. It's pretty new. I think it came out in 2009, but you should be able to get it at the library. You should be able to get the book from the library uh, and or a used copy. If you decide that you really got to have it in your personal library, uh, just nab a used copy, but it is great. Uh, this is one incident that I will share from the book that is just uh Ooh. Uh, so this is 1960s, right? So you got protests and all that stuff going on 1960s in Chicago. On August 8th, Jesse Jackson had unexpectedly announced that the next area to be targeted for open housing marches would be Cicero, an all-white, mostly working-class suburb that had a well-deserved reputation for using violence against any black who dared set foot there. The last time a black family attempted to move to Cicero, a white mob smashed windows and ripped down the trees around their apartment complex. The riot stopped only when police flooded the area. That was in 1951. By 1966, little had changed. In May of that year, a black teenage honor student named Jerome Huey had gone into the neighborhood to apply for a job. He was attacked by four white teenagers 
who smashed his head so severely that his eyes were beaten out of his skull. The boy died. Cicero. You don't know what Cicero meant to people in Chicago, said Corey Bryant, a black Chicagoan. You didn't walk through Cicero alone. You didn't let your car break down in Cicero. You just didn't go to Cicero if you were black. I'm actually going to uh, skip ahead just a, a little bit, just to give you a little bit more context in terms of why I was really looking ahead uh, for the program on Wednesday with Beryl Satter. So keep that name in mind, right? So you move forward. Uh, this is in September of 1966. Labor Day weekend, the Cicero March finally took place. So black people have been, Dr. King is involved in this, right? He goes to Chicago, right? They're doing all this to address problems black people in Chicago are having about racism. Daly, Mayor Daly dispatched 2,000 National Guardsmen and 1,000 police to protect 250 marchers from a mob of 3,000 whites. Cicero whites shouted, go back to Africa, and 2468, we don't want to integrate. The marchers called back black power black power. They stopped at the site where Jerome Huey had been murdered. Huey's parents, Isaac and Ruth, were present. Mrs. Huey wept as one of the marchers, a theology student, said a prayer in her son's memory. While the group prayed, hundreds of whites crowded around them, waving swastikas and shouting taunts. I will stop there, but that's pretty much what this book is, about 500 pages of that in in a variety of different forms. That's about what it is. <laughs> that's I'm looking ahead to Wednesday. Um, definitely. I would highly recommend this book. It is dense reading. It's very footnoted. Um, I mean, this is written for the Academy. She is a white person, suspected racist. I definitely see a lot of different instances where I think she's practicing racism and how it's put together. But I mean, Wow. This should be another one to put up. White people are not ignorant about racism. They are very informed about the history of what they have done to black people, us. Anyway, that is Wednesday, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Moving forward, if folks have uh, things that they would like to share uh, about what they heard this evening from Mr. Blazak, admitted racist, and or uh, the pool situation, even though, as I said again, I'm not, you know, jumping up and down about that. That sort of thing happens every day uh, to black children, black quote unquote adults, and even black elderly people. That's just every day on the plantation. But uh, if folks have anything they want to get out on that as well, uh, feel free. Uh, even, even one quick note that I can give, I think the white person that did the filming, the video, he has done a few interviews uh, of that whole pool incident. I think even he said, he was a very young white person. I think he's a teen. He said, not ignorant, he said that these police officers, race soldiers, that they came through and they were just hunting for black people. They were hunting non-white people. He said they didn't do anything to the white people that were there. I was standing in the midst of it all. I'm white. They didn't do anything to me. They were just hunting for black people. I'm paraphrasing, but that's real close to almost being verbatim what he said. And this is, again, this is not some white student who's taking a uh, critical race theory courses. This is not some Ph.D. scholar. He hasn't written a dissertation on racism. He's very aware. He knows what's going down. He knows exactly what they were doing. Anywho, uh, all I can say uh, with Professor Blazak uh, before I you know, open the floor, you all can give your comments. It's a very important uh, when you're talking with these white people, uh, these 
alleged do-gooder white people that say that they're great and they might even admit racism exists and all that nonsense. Just pay attention because they will contradict themselves all the time. I think you heard some of that in the responses he gave on the program uh, and even that article that he authored on B.B. King. I could see the foolishness uh, piling up at the very beginning because he writes in the article, he says that this post, it could be titled how B.B. King stopped me from being a racist. Right. He says that at the beginning. So then after you've read and read and read his buckets of words, blah, 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 you get all the way to the end and he says, I'm a racist. I can never say that I'm not a racist. And it's like, well, wait a minute. You said at the beginning that this post could be titled how B.B. King stopped me from being a racist. That's what, and I mean, that's standard operating procedure. They will just lie and give you all kinds of nonsense. I've even pointed out before, they will not be clear. They will not use the clearest language to explain, even when they are saying something that's true. He'll give you a sentence that says something like, I'll never say that I am not a racist, which is uh, a double negative, right? You're not even supposed to say, uh, put a phrase together uh, that is, I will never say that I am not a racist. You would just say, I am a racist. Make it clean, <laughs> as opposed to all that. You get all this convoluted language and nonsense. He was doing a lot of conflation and saying, well, we did this to Africans and we did the same thing to gay people and we did the same thing to lesbians and poor white people and all this conflation. Uh, just the same means of confusing non-white people about what racism, white supremacy is to give the uh, illusion. And it's very powerful that there are some good white people that maybe they can be rehabilitated. Maybe they're not all racist. If we just get them the right information, they will change their tune, get them a few Tim Wise books and everything will be all good. That same sort of nonsense you'll hear. It's very consistent. Uh, and, and certainly him being married to a non-white person uh, just really put, uh, it just put it all on display for me that, yeah, this person is not serious, that they are very informed, very knowledgeable about this system and their practice of racism, white supremacy. They're just very good and very accustomed to being able to use words to confuse non-white people so that we think he's cool. He's down. He's one of the good ones. He knows what's up. We just need to get, you know, a few more like him and everything will be good. Nothing could be further from the truth. Um, if folks have uh, comments that they want to make sure they get in, feel free. Uh, everyone who dialed in with a hand up, your line should be open. Have you heard? Yes, sir. Yeah. Oh no, I I think this was a it was a, it was a pretty good show. You know, you said you got you got somebody coming on Wednesday that might be good. But I think this is a pretty good show because it kind of you know it, it it let him practice you know what I'm saying his white supremacy on black people. It was like it was. It was it was an exercise for him, you know what I'm saying. When I asked him, "Does it feel good?" He was like, "Yeah, you know, it's up for you to decide." But you know, but the truth of the matter is, he he knew exactly what he was doing. It, 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 it to me, he he was a good a good a good uh, guest because he let you see him practicing it without agreeing 
with you while agreeing with you. You know, he was kind of like, yeah, the two types of white people to me is, is, is amateur white supremacists and is veteran white supremacists. The amateurs, they, they practice it, and they might say, well, I don't really know, you know what I'm saying? But the veterans, they they like, man, I'm I'm doing this. I'm doing it. You know? And 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 I know how to deceive black people. So I think you know he, he was, I wouldn't say he was a bad not not a bad guest that didn't give a lot of information. He was a bad guest that didn't give a lot of information because he was strongly practicing white supremacy. That's it. Could I be honest? Yeah. Um, well, you know, I, I called it. I called it kind of like in the middle. For some reason, I came in. I called in at eight o'clock, and I thought, when you said seven o'clock, was that seven o'clock Eastern time? Uh, I'm pretty. Well, I assume you're saying Saturday when I said these programs are coming up. Um, I. I may have made an error, but I'm pretty sure I said it was normal time, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. I might have said 7 Central. Sometimes I do throw in Central because I know we have people in that time zone, too. But um, I hope I said the oh. time of 8 Eastern. Oh, okay, okay. That's what, that's, that's what threw me out. I was confused about. But, yeah, I asked them the question, and I asked that question before. It's probably like my second time asking that question. One time it was to uh, uh, openly, you know, open racist, who, you know, self-admitted and open and didn't care about it. I forgot it was a guess you had on there a little over a year ago. And I asked him, and he was straight up about it. And it seemed like both of them, you know, uh, were straight up about it. Um, yes, this is the colony that we set up, you know, as white supremacists. And no, we're not ever giving this land back to the nation, ever. In fact, even, I'm not using that word, but he even said, he even think of that as a pipe dream. If that's a pipe dream, he even think that they're going to ever give the land back. So, you know, it's kind of like, without the reason I asked them that, it's kind of like me asking them the same thing. Um, do you ever think white people will ever stop being racist? It's like me asking them that without asking them that. You know what I'm saying? Because that shows that they are serious, like you said, uh, committed to practicing racism and keeping this sham government going. You know, this is an illegitimate government. And I think sometimes the victims, we even um, legitimize it. Even though we don't have a choice, you know, but... The question about, the whole question about, did you vote to a non-white person? To me, did you vote? Did I vote in what? Did I cast my vote in an illegitimate government? That's what we asking ourselves. And we legitimize it. And I don't even think we see the seriousness in it. I think about that sometimes. And um, I struggled it within, within, um, within myself um, about voting. And, you know, the guilt of, 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 of participating in the illegitimate government. You see, um, even though we don't have any choice, 
But I rather my church be by force instead of by me giving up my, you know, you know, giving my own, getting up and doing it myself. You know what I'm saying? I rather my participation be as a subject instead of a voting citizen in the sham government, in the uh, illegitimate government. But um, that's just my opinion as a victim of racism. I mean, my line seems to listen. Mm-hmm. Me too. Do that too. Do that too. Mm-hmm. Any of the other folks that are with us? Good hearing uh, from our call in Alabama. Anybody else with a hand up have any comments they want to make sure they got in? What they heard from uh, Professor Blazak, pool situation, uh, other commentary they want to make sure they got in before we wrap things up? Hello? Yes, sir. Hi, um, I just have a, a quick question. Um, when, like, during the discussions about white supremacy with white people, um, you know, when they're laughing or, you know, or giggling during the discussions, um, you know, do you have, like, any idea of, like, what they um, think is, like, funny during these discussions? Uh, it depends on, on where the laugh is. I know I've pointed it out. Uh, times before when white people have giggled on the program um, for situations like today, like the couple times that I think I pointed out when he kind of snickered. Um, I remember it's uh, one of the white co-authors of uh, the color of wealth. Uh, she has like a long, long handle uh, it's hyphenated, uh, but she was on the program and I was asking her kind of some of the same questions. Are you you know serious about this as a white person? And, you know, um, kind of the, the, the quote from ta Coast where he says that white people are greatly pained. It was something along those lines and asking her how pained she was or what she was willing to give up as a white person around all this. And she just started giggling. And I said that right there lets me know how serious uh, you are about all this. I think uh, Mr. Blazak at the beginning of the interview when he started snickering uh, around being questioned because he said in the as I said, he said in the article that he was a racist. And then when I asked him on the program for confirmation and it's, oh, no, I'm not a racist. Well, I did say that. Well, wait a minute. I got to, you know, give my caveats about this and his giggles come out there. Just to me, it shows that they're they're not serious at all uh, about all of this. And I think also it shows that they are accustomed to having a good time. Uh, this is like fun and games for them to be able to come and talk to black people and not be thought of as a racist. I can say whatever I want. I can make up nonsense. I can't even give out accurate information if I want to. And this will be great. Uh, I won't be thought of as a racist. They're, they're accustomed to really being able to do that. It benefits the system and they can have a good time doing it to come and be questioned. Like what you, you niggas have the audacity to question me like, Oh man, uh, that that's the type of, that's the type of uh, analysis um, that I've come to in terms of, of some of the times. I think some 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 different uh, instances where they're laughing, it might be something else. I would have to go back and listen to pick out specific examples. But around the types of exchanges we had with him today and some of the other white guests, I think that's what it is, that this is not this is not serious work for them at all beyond confusing non-white people making money doing it. And I'm still talking to niggers and you all can question or whatever and, and say that to the other, I'm still white, I'm still in charge and <laughs> whatever. You just have to take it at that. If that makes sense. Yeah. Um, that made a lot more sense. Um, thank you for the clarification, Gus. 
we've had a lot of giggling white people uh, on this program. Like you probably had to give me a minute to go back and think, but it's been quite a few instances where we have had white people on the program and they've been, you know, laughing it up, ha ha ha, giggling, snickering, that sort of thing. Uh, you can kind of go back and, and see the pattern of that sort of behavior. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, I had a question. Um, it's kind of off topic, but um, I was been having conversations with some, you know, non-white people, and they was telling me about sovereignty. And I was just had a question, Gus, to you or any of the callers. Have you heard about or ever discussed sovereignty as a solution to escape white supremacy? I've heard that uh, before. Uh, I'm sure that's come up on the program before. Uh, I certainly advocate everyone, you know, think for yourself, come to your own conclusions. I haven't seen any evidence uh, that white people are going to respect a any non-white person saying that they are, quote unquote, sovereign. Uh, I haven't seen any indication that non-white people can get documents, papers, put a fence up or anything else and say, well, we are declaring that we are sovereign, that you racist man, racist woman, racist child, you don't have any authority over what's going to happen in this, you know, cordoned off piece of territory. I have not seen where racists respect that. I know a lot of people say that, you know, that's something that could work that would help us uh, solve some of our problems. I just have not seen any any evidence that uh, racist man, racist woman, racist child, that they are going to back down and say, oh, you all are, are sovereign citizens of whatever whatever area you say. Oh, OK, we'll we'll leave you alone. We'll find some other niggas to mistreat. I just haven't seen any evidence that that's true. I could be in error. Maybe I and I and it might be that I just don't have enough information. Maybe that's the case as well. Right, because um, a, a guy I was talking to gave me a example of some a white person that was sovereign. Uh, handed them to the police, and the police couldn't arrest them. And I was like, well, I don't think that would happen with somebody that was black trying to do the same thing. You know, it'd probably end up in, you know, a headline on the news, you know? I, the people that are saying that, people that take that position, if they think that's something that'll work out and it will benefit black people and keep instances like James Byrne Jr. or the situation with the pool incident this past weekend will keep those things from happening, keep black people from being mistreated, present the evidence and, you know, we can pick it up. But I just, I don't think that's right. going to solve this problem. Hey, I've, I've, uh, yeah, I've, I've heard about it and I've seen like YouTube clips of, of brothers that, you know, been in the court system and they, they, they fighting like a ticket, but I haven't seen anyone like make a, a claim or something like something that's, you know, that, that, that's prosperous, like land or, you know, something, something like that. I've, I've heard small time things and, and from what I've seen, they've just like gotten their case extended to the point where it may have got thrown out. I'm not too, uh, you know, um, intelligent on the, not saying not intelligent on the court system, but I don't know to that extent. But I don't know if you know something on a level where it can get attention to to do it. Like I've heard, I don't know if y'all heard of like the straw man. 
the straw man thing and where people be like, you can get, the the government owes you such and such amount of money and, you know, and and you, but I've never seen anybody that, like, has has done it. It's like an infomercial, you know, to to an extent. I've never seen anyone who collected. So, I mean, the, the, the more thing, I, I, I'm not, anything that, that can raise your conscience out of the state that we're in, I'm for it. But I need to see results, me personally, with that. That's all I'm saying. I've heard it quite a bit. Uh, myself and uh, basically uh, my uh, self thought is VGQ and uh, keep it moving you know it's, it's, it's you know as far as that person's uh, thoughts concerned I haven't seen any evidence towards it I know a lot of people that keeps a lot of paperwork and and uh, saying that they are attempting to uh, Sue somebody on their behalf of land and and uh, what have you, but uh, I don't see any evidence towards white people feeling uncomfortable about it at all. Uh, uh, let alone talking about it, you know. I mean, it making uh, any of their uh, uh, news outlets. That uh, there's a danger ahead uh, that uh, these type of things are showing some sort of uh, results, and uh, but at the same time, uh, I I wouldn't I wouldn't say anything further to it. You know, I mean, uh, there's some things about the Moorish Science Temple that uh, is uh, directly instrumental on some of the information that we talk about. You know, so and and it's and it's construct and it's constructive. You know, some of it that I've heard over the over the over the years. But uh, as far as that aspect of it, uh, as what I've heard, you know, I haven't seen any uh, any uh, in your hand results. You know, other than paper, and uh, I would figure it's good strategy to be. Uh, racist white supremacists to hand out plenty of paper to, to non-white black people. Plenty of paper saying what, uh, you know, hey, yeah, right, yeah, what, okay, yeah, well, uh, here's your paper, you know. One thing I do know, they, 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 uh, they are, uh, they're prepared for any uh, uh, action that's taken, physical action. That's taken. Uh, as far as you know, saying that you have this and it becoming a reality is, oftentimes, two different things. I I believe that they don't, being that they don't respect our culture, and the only thing that they recognize as culture is their supremacy. That's. Like the the more thing is just like giving us the Egypt thing. Yeah, it can make us feel like something. Like, hey, we we can claim it. It's ours. But they don't care. They like, yeah, okay, yeah, it's our, it's y'all's. You know what I'm saying? Even if y'all can convince us, it's y'all's. 
we don't care. It, it doesn't matter. It's ours. <laughs> so the more thing is like, you know, it's like, yeah, we know y'all was here. We knew y'all was running this. But just like, you know what I'm saying, they, they'll show us. They show us. They, they, it's like it's African people in Africa now, and they like, it's ours. I don't care if, if, if y'all think it was y'all's. You know, I don't care what you think. I don't care what you want. It's bottom line is ours. So the more thing is like preaching the uh I'm sorry to use the word preaching, but it's like it's like giving us Egypt, but we can't even claim Egypt. It's like yeah. giving us Africa, but we can't even claim Africa. We can't claim right. the land here. They don't care. They don't care about our 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 ancestors, our the 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 stuff that's in us. They don't they don't see us as something <laughs> on the same. I don't, I don't mean to go on and on, but you know it, it, that's just how it is. How I feel about it. Are there folks yeah. uh, we haven't heard from? Anybody else that uh, put a hand up that we haven't heard from? Yes, can I be heard? Yes, sir. Yes. Um, I'd just like to point out, uh, you brought out the different aspects of uh, the deception that um, he was giving us in just outright lies, the conflation, and it's just the codification that these white people have you know, one to the other. It's almost like a recording of the last white person that we had on. And <clears throat> some reveal uh, a little truth, you know, along with, you know, the other issues that they have, you know, other uh, deceptions that they are uh, displaying. But it all boils down to the same thing. Uh, I wanted to uh, briefly say something about the <clears throat> swimming pools incident. I remember back in the 70s, I was in a small town. And we had a, a municipal pool that during that time that of desegregation or integration, whatever you want to call it, uh, blacks could not swim with white, but even after they were ordered to integrate, then it was somewhat 10, at least 10 years before that actually came about. And I remember uh, one of the football coaches being uh, the proprietor of the city pool, and then uh, he used me as a young student you know, to open the city pool for blacks in that particular area, and then uh, uh, showed me how to purchase, you know, my concessions and this and that, how to charge. And he didn't even want anything for that. I was able to keep all the profits from that. I always felt, although I was a young age, about 16, I felt there was something wrong with that 
But by me being the recipient of the prophets, then I, I guess, turned the other cheek and was able to turn that little summer into a profit for myself. But at the same time, knowing that I was participating in something that was not quite right. And uh, I'll mute my line on that. It's almost like uh, instead of looking for that one white person that would be totally honest and uh, that is totally sincere, I look for these white people to get these patterns, each and every one of them as they come on the show. And no one has let me down yet. I think that uh, <clears throat> Professor Blazak was refined. And uh, like all the other ones, he has a lot of regard for Tim Wise or Jessica Petty, some of these other anti-racists. And they all are on a codified uh, type note. And I'll mute my line on that. Thanks. Hello, can I be heard? Uh, yes, ma'am, we can hear you. Or, yes, sir. Sorry, sir, sir, um, sorry, sorry, sorry. No, no, it's okay. It's all right. I'll try to speak clearly. Um, uh, so I had a question. This is a bit off the topic, but I wanted to know if, uh, gosh, you know anybody that will be willing to teach a course on racism, white supremacy, uh, and, of course, be compensated? Is this like online or do they have to? Yeah, yeah. I have a, a, a website called teachmetopass.com. And it is uh, a website dedicated to uh, providing education for African-Americans. Uh, and uh, it's uh, all online. It's, uh, again, uh, teachmetopass.com. And I'm looking for instructors. Hmm. What... Uh... Like, what are some of the details? Like, how many uh, hours of teaching would it involve? How many students potentially? Just uh, some. Um, of the... So, I just launched uh, the the site in uh, 2015 earlier this year, and um, uh, it's not a, a set number of hours or what have you. The way it works is that you create a course, and uh, you get paid per student that enrolls. Uh, you set the price of your course. You teach whatever you want. Um, all hosting is free. Uh, so essentially you just teach the course that you want to teach. It could be about anything. It doesn't have to be about one particular area. Um, but it is a, a website dedicated to African Americans and their educational learning experience. So, um, you would create a course, uh, you create the content, uh, try to ask that the content be predominantly video. That doesn't mean you have to record yourself. It could be a video presentation. Um, you can do live courses. Uh, you can do uh, recorded courses, um, but it's a way for African-Americans to engage in the economic development of each other while educating ourselves and uh, being compensated for it. Hmm. That's great. Uh, I, I know we have folks who listen uh, who definitely have expertise in a lot of different areas, including racism, obviously. Um do you have a means? Because it seems like that would be something folks, if they are interested, they probably want more details. Do you have like an email where folks could, you know, give you a, a contact and, and ask a few questions? Yeah, absolutely. Um, they can email me at info at teachmetopass.com. 
You want to give it again? Or they can, or they can shoot an email to uh, Black Moniker. That's B L A C K M O N I K E R at gmail.com. Great. If you want to give them both one more time, just to make sure, in case we got slow writers. Yeah, no problem. It's info at teachmetopass.com. No funny spelling. And then they can also email me at blackmoniker at gmail.com. And that's B-L-A-C-K-M-O-N-I-K-E-R at gmail.com. Great. Outstanding. I definitely encourage folks not to be spectators. If you, you know, have some expertise, you think you could put a course together, together, uh, that's something that you would like to explore or at minimum to get more details about uh, before you make a decision. You have the contact information. Reach out. Uh, Definitely something that uh, folks should be thinking about. He even asked specifically about racism. So definitely think about that. That's something you. Yeah. uh, And you don't have to have a degree or. Or anything like that. If you have a skill set, expertise, a lot of people don't realize, especially us as black people, uh, being in this society, um, we're downplayed and, and, and told that, you know, uh, what we have is not valuable. And this is a way for us to not have to go through the traditional route to get education about ourselves, our history, uh, the things that we're interested in. So, Great, great. Outstanding. Black people trying to solve each other's problems. Need more of that. Um. Wow, so folks can can contact if they have info uh, or if they have questions or interest. Um, making sure because we have about ten minutes left before we wrap up. Did anybody else have anything they wanted to get in comments? They they want to make sure they got in before we uh, wrap up in the last ten minutes. Uh, two things, Gus. Uh, number one, the guest. Uh, he was doing a lot of. He, he did a lot of talking about, and he used the phrase, uh, I think, white people in the South, as though there's some sort of difference of of white people based on directions. Uh, he kept referencing that over and over again, and uh, which is which is not not untypical of of uh, white people, and and some uh, non-white people who are who are more confused on the system of racial white supremacy. Uh, also, he mentioned he mentioned something about uh, this concern about the dwindling number of white people. Uh, would I be correct in saying that in South Africa, uh, white people probably make up less than 5% of the population, but yet they control everything in South Africa, as well as a lot of other places where they are a tiny number. <laughs> Excuse me. Uh, and, and last but not least, the incident that took place in Texas uh, with the uh, with the black children. Uh, uh, the I believe the homeowner homeowners association, even almost at the probably the inception of them building the, those homes in that area, white people are very very shrewd on their planning process. That they have those different codes and 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 uh, and plans uh, with uh, things like quote unquote community pools uh, and also <laughs> those real small police forces like that police force uh, that uh, is within that area where they actually have control over over the, the police force in, in itself uh, and uh, 
from the advent of some non-white people coming into those places as homeowners, uh, they are prepared to wield to wield their uh, their desires or their or their uh, actions on black people at any given time. From my observation, I could be wrong. That's how. That's my take on it. As far as what I've observed, there was there was some talk about that process also uh, around this this so-called community pool uh, that they have different rules. X X amount of people can only uh, come to the pool, and and you probably have to be a resident of the area. Uh, so uh, they have it all well and planned, you know. Uh, uh, when uh, black people and including black children come in in the uh, in the particular areas where they where they at, that's my base of uh, my take on that that incident. Hey Gus. Hello. Yes, sir. We can hear you. I, I just had a question. What was the uh, name of the um, the 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 KKK leader that you had on the show a while back? I assume that's got to be Johnny Lee Clary. Uh, he was on the program in 2009. He was a former KKK. Uh, member, uh, we talked about his time in the Klan and all that other good stuff. But that was uh, like 2009. He was on the program, I think. That was a classic. That was a classic right there. He he said one thing. I I never forget it. <laughs> he said, "Black is beautiful, tan is gray, but white still the color of the big boss man." <laughs> I never forget that man. I'll never forget that. It's, it's like reality. Just it's, it's art. Put it into reality. You know. I think he's since deceased. If you have trouble, finding, I'm, uh, I'm just sorry. I just saying real quick. If anybody has trouble finding that in the archives, you can let me know. But it should be. Uh, in the current feed and several other spots, you shouldn't have too much trouble uh, tracking that one down. I don't. I think it's uh, not in iTunes, but if you look in other sites or the current feed, it should be there. Yeah, I just had a request, Gus. Um, whenever you had these anti-racist people, could you bring you back the double whammy and the buckets of words? Because that's just. I just, I just had it prompted in my head a lot of the times when the guy was talking. You know, just a lot of stuff he said was just so confusing. It was just long-winded. And I find that's a trend among all these white people that say they're anti-racist. Like, they have, just, they have the same code of conduct. I agree. I, I absolutely agree. I think some of the other callers have mentioned it as well, that they do have a... Uh, a code. It seems like we see a lot of the same patterns, a lot of the the same verbal responses to certain questions, or when they get uh, challenged, uh, when they are presenting uh, a faulty uh, response or an inaccurate uh, piece of information, uh, trying to pass that off. You get a lot of the same responses, but uh, yeah, I try to get the uh, buckets of words in when I can. The the uh, double whammy. That's 
associated with something else. So that, uh, oh. <laughs> the reason that I play that, but yeah, definitely the buckets of words that, that definitely was, uh, would have been warranted many times over today. Right. Uh, any miss anybody, anybody have anything they want to make sure they get in last couple seconds before we, uh, wrap up, be back on Wednesday, but, uh, last few minutes, anybody have anything they needed to get in before we conclude? May I be hurt? Yes, sir. Hey, Gus Dwight from Alabama, man. Um, <laughs> I would have never, ever heard of Neely Fuller Jr. had I not been listening to the cows. But since I've stumbled upon this man, this man speaks so much truth and, and some of the real, I mean, some of the most profound words that I've If you what it is and how it works, Everything else will only confusion. I just leave it with that right there, man. Thank you so much. Thank you. For sure. Mr. Fuller, a lot of great information. Uh, folks can visit his website, uh, the book, books, rather, books, the code book and or the word guide, uh, producejustice.com. Producejustice.com. Uh, Mr. Fuller, I think for folks, if you were... Uh, here before we got started with Mr. Blazak, I think I was playing one of the audio segments where he was having an exchange with a likely race soldier, a white woman from some years back. But yeah, a lot of uh, clarity uh, with uh, regards to this problem and some things we can do to try to make improvements. Uh, with that, uh, we have done our three. Uh, again, we should be back in two days, uh, 48 hours, uh, same program time, 8 p.m. Eastern, 7 p.m. Central, 5 p.m. Pacific, uh, Beryl Satter, white woman. Uh, she is a professor at Rutgers, uh, her book, Family Property. I think it got lots of accolades and prizes and just looked at, oh, it's tremendous work. Uh, folks uh, read the piece ta Coates did last year about reparations. He references her piece because he's uh, in that piece. He was mostly focused on Chicago uh, and her book uh, that we'll be talking about this Wednesday is exclusively focused on Chicago. Uh, but he referenced her. I think she's uh, one of those well cited uh, figures, uh, folks in the academy when they start talking about. Uh, racism, particularly when they start talking about housing segregation and or racism in Chicago, uh, her work generally pops up. But she should be with us this Wednesday. Uh, I'm looking forward. Uh, good. I think she has a lot more uh, information that you can use, but still, she's most likely a race soldier, too. So be prepared uh, all the way around uh, Wednesday, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Uh, if you have other questions, concerns, like trying to find Johnny Lee Clary in the archives or some of the uh, older content, you can drop me a line if you get confused or can't track something down. Uh, as I said uh, with Professor Blazak, if I get his dissertation or any other information that I think is constructive, I'll just put it on the Facebook page so folks can peruse at your leisure. Uh, we are fundraising summer 2015. Invest if you think the program is constructive racism hyphen notes dot blogspot dot com racism hyphen notes dot blogspot dot com listener supported counter racist radio uh, you should see the PayPal button in the top right corner. Uh, if you get confused, can't find it, and or you're just not into PayPal, you don't trust all that 
feel free, drop me an email and we will get you a mailing address. Uh, definitely appreciate everyone who has invested down through the years. I uh, hope the program has been and continues to be worthy of your time and energy. Uh, definitely appreciate everybody for being uh, gracious in their support. Um, if you uh, have suggestions, anything else, you can feel free to let me know that as well. We're also on Twitter at Until Justice. Uh, again, at Twitter at Until Justice. Uh, grand to hear from all the callers. I uh, hope it was a great investment of your Monday evening. Uh, stay safe. Enjoy the warm weather. Uh, again, remain codified. Uh, you see what can happen to unarmed black children uh, who are menacing and threatening whites with their moist towels and bathing suits. So you can only imagine uh, how white people will escalate their terrorism if they can say, well, we think they were intoxicated. We think they, you know, they were drinking. So they are, they're, they're just out of control savages and they're all doped up and what have you. Just again, uh, do everything you can. I would encourage sobriety, but at minimum, make sure if you're going to be behind the wheel, be sober. Uh, even I would say if you're going to be a passenger in a vehicle, be sober. Uh, even if you're going to be a pedestrian, I would encourage be sober. Uh, it's just racists. White people, they are actively engaged in terrorizing black people at all times. Anything will be used to justify abusing black people. It's not saying if you stay sober that you are going to be protected from racism. It's just saying that under conditions of war, it would be best to do everything that we can to minimize unnecessary conflict, unnecessary problems, the alcohol, the intoxicants, that is a big one that we can minimize and just saying, hey, I'm not participating in that. I'm going to do everything I can to be sober uh, so that I'm less likely, hopefully, to have any of these nasty uh, interactions with whites, enforcement officers, and even other victims. Because a lot of times we have a, a lot of unnecessary conflict uh, just when we are uh, intoxicated, not sober, and just silliness pops off that, you know, wouldn't take place if we were thinking in our correct mind. So, again, our PSA, sobriety would be best under conditions of war. That being said, creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of racism. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. Remind us that we have enemies and those enemies are white. It has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Context of white supremacy signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, What's brother. Your problem? You're a victim. Uh, I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. <laughs> with the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? 
No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.